It's like 2 a.m. in the morning, and we hear dun 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 boots slapping along the, the runway out there. The doors of the laundry boost open. In come 12 members of the security squad, both sergeants, a lieutenant, and they holler out this guy's name. So I said, that's fine. I said, I've got one addiction, one addiction only, and I don't want to get rid of it. And he goes, what's that? I said, motorcycles. And I said, well, what's she doing time for? He goes, well, because she cut up one of the whores that wasn't going to pay her money for working at the truck stop. And I said, yeah, you know, this is a functional family. Quite honestly, as far as I was always concerned, the Paisas were probably the more dangerous one because they lived in you know places where it was violent virtually all the time. Felipe had used uh, inmate napalm on him, which is you boil a pot of water, you put baby oil in it, and you throw Kool-Aid in it. So when you throw it on, the water burns, the baby oil cooks, and the sugar gets in there and will cause infection. Ooh. And it, it's very effective, you know. They wanted you or whoever did it to be turned over to them. And he's like, well, it's not like they would have killed us. I said, that would have been what you've been hoping for. You know, you better start giving us the respect we have coming. So what respect? He goes, well, we're doing hard time. I said, you're not doing hard time. You don't know what hard time is. And he goes, don't you know who I am? I said, yeah, and I don't really care. I'm Charles, you know, Manson. I'm more than Jesus Christ ever was. He is back. I am talking about our very first podcast guest, most viral podcast guest ever. Caused a lot of people to comment on his videos and. That engagement has created over 10 million views on his combined videos presently. He's got one video that's at 7 million views. If you've not seen it, what happens if a shot caller puts a green light on you in Folsom Prison? It's one story, 38 minutes. If all of our guests could just come on and tell stories of 38 minutes, 40 minutes, 50, whatever, we could just sit here and keep our mouths shut. It would make my life much easier. But yeah, so we are absolutely delighted for Jamie Morgan Kane to be back on. What we're going to do is, because we've already done three podcasts with him, we'll run those after these if you want to stay tuned, or if you want to go in the description box, we'll, you can go down and watch them immediately down there. But what we're going to do is, because Jamie spent 34 years in California's toughest prisons, he's got endless stories, and they're all mind-blowing. So we're going to cover some of those stories that we, we've never published before, in this podcast. You won't have heard these stories anywhere. And if you want to get even more stories, book number two, not number one, book number two, <laughs> Behind the Granite Walls, on the back of the Funzing Talks and the early podcasts, Jamie landed a major book deal with Mirror Books Group, one of the biggest publishers in the world. He took them hundreds of pages of documentation because of all of the controversy around the videos. He took them all of his legal paperwork, his, his, his prison history, his military records, and their lawyers confirmed his story, and they didn't just 
do one book with him. It sold so many, they have done two. Two. So if you've got a problem with anything he says, take it to the legal department. <laughs> Not to us. But feel free to say whatever you want in the comments on these videos because it always it adds the engagement. doesn't matter if it's good, doesn't matter if it's bad. It adds the engagement and YouTube pushes it even more. Now, since the last three videos, I was contacted by a guy who was in L.A. County Jail Fre back in Fresno, the day. Fresno County. Fresno County Jail back in the day. What year? Uh, it was 1983. 1983. And he said he was in the... And he thinks this is the same guy that protected him. And it is. And then we put him in touch. And he, in, the, in this initial co um, conversation that I had with this person who was trying to get a hold and find out if it was the same guy, Jamie's the same guy. He said, Jamie was massive. He was a force to be reckoned with in Fresno County Jail. And Jamie has brought some photos. And we'll, we'll perhaps get these made big and put on the screen as I'm showing these. But... You can see how built he is on that one. We'll have the full photo. That was him at 34. Is that um, biking that, that, or in the joint? That's in the joint. Uh, that's four years after I went into the joint, but that's basically the size I was in the county jail. Here he is at 27. Yeah, that was just when I started getting back into working out. And at 60. Still hench. Hench, <laughs> hench at 60. And now people look at Jamie now and think, how is any of this possible? Well, hey, we all, we're all going to get old and not look like the badass we were once back in the day. You do still look like a badass. <laughs> <laughs> so Jen is going to read you the back cover blurb. Yep. So we start with torture, fear, violence and despair. Prison is a word which conjures up many dark thoughts and feelings. Only those who have been there will know what it's really like. In the best-selling 34 Years in Hell, author Jamie Morgan Cain told his remarkable life story about how circumstances persuaded him to plead guilty to a crime he did not commit and served more than three decades in American jail. Released in 2018 and now re rebuilding his life in a British birth country, he has been asked many times, what was prison really like? In Behind the Granite Walls, the book he answers that question he oh, sorry he answers that question revealing the secret that enabled him to survive this is the ultimate inside guide to what it's like to be behind bars in the usa and his first book it, it's sold like crazy it's highly reviewed all over the world his second book is going to follow in its footsteps and we actually went to the isle of man with jamie we took him to speak at schools, at the prison. We're going to put some of that footage maybe uh, to, at the end of this video with all of his other podcasts. It'll be a big blockbuster edition. But to start out, we are going to get into these prison stories because we just like, they're so gripping. We just like to go take you right there. So huge thank It's absolutely fantastic to yeah, see you again, Jamie. You. Well, it's, it's nice to be here. And like I said, it's good to see you again. And like I said, nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Absolute pleasure. And you, you've moved to Newcastle. It's, you're doing great. You've got that light in your eyes. But before we get to the updates on your life, let's just jump straight in to some of these prison stories. So the first one then is Spike. Yeah, yeah. Spike, um, he was a rather interesting character. I, I met him about... 
five years after he'd come to prison. Uh, he was down at CMC <clears throat> taking a, a, thera- a therapy class down there, cat, what they call CAT-T, which was intensified uh, therapy. You had to live with the, 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 your, your therapy groups, and it was 18 months long, and you know, like 10 hours a day you, were, you had to do whatever their program was. Well, they did give you one option of doing something recreational exercising. <clears throat> and um, he'd gotten in with the coach uh, in the gym, and they had a powerlifting club and a weightlifting club there. And the coach we had had actually worked for a number of universities, though he had to leave those jobs under certain clouds because he got rather friendly with some of the female girls that were students of his. But he was a great big power lifter type guy. And he actually set up uh, contests uh, where outside uh, colleges and um, amateur and semi-professionals would come in and they would do the powerlifting, weightlifting, you know, thing. And we actually had a few guys who were under his tutelage that actually set records for their weight classes. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, Spike got in there as an equipment guy when he first came came to them. And um, he got in there about two years after he came to prison for that program. And he'd been extended in the program, which is almost unheard of, but the coach had suggested that he, he needed to have the, this balance and stuff. And actually the coach was later found out to have been providing steroids to his power lifter guys. And the thing about spike, when I first met him was he was like a walking brick, Hmm. you know? And if you know people who did really heavy steroids, they, they, they can't walk, in a, a normal way it's kind of a bum 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 and this is him and the thing was but the other thing that <clears throat> would grab your attention is his face was heavily tattooed which at that time there weren't a lot of guys with tattoos in prison on their faces you know he had a, a big eagle on the forehead coming down with claws you know on it he had an ink bottle spilling ink on one side you know he had a dragon over here breathing fire across his lips you know <laughs> You know, he had this lightning bolt going down the center of his nose and his, and he had the, the full beard going down to his neck where it was like ghouls and goblins and things tearing out of the skin and all this stuff. So people see that and a lot of people go, oh, you know, and and, thing. and um, for the way I met him was that um, because I came in with the amount of time I had, because I had been a motor uh, been a biker and rode motorcycles and was had been with a club and stuff the first board um review i had nine months in said this is the kind of stuff you need to do if you ever want to get paroled you got to do these things you need to take aa and i said but i'm not an alcoholic and he said well the way we're looking at it with the amount of time you might end up doing all said and done you'll probably become an alcoholic because you'll have a reason to drink and this is what the guy tells me right he says, so give me, give me some, give me some time. And he goes, and then I'll write you off of it, you know, just, but show me you're willing to do your, do your best. And I went, oh, okay. So <laughs> I signed up, um, with AA, with the secretary, um, and the, the guy who was the secretary, everybody called him chicken wing because he had been a thalidomide baby and he had one arm that was all kind of shrunken up and he only had 
three fingers on it and his thumb was actually his big toe off his right foot that they'd actually put on to make a thumb so he could you know work with that you know and he was like really skinny couldn't couldn't put hardly any weight on his stuff but i met him on the weight pile funny enough and he had had special gloves made and stuff and he was trying to lift weights and and i saw he struggling so i went over and i first offered and he says well i don't need your help he goes I'm a man. I went, yeah, well, that's fine. But, you know, there's time when you're lifting too much weight and you need help. So I spotted for him. And then when he realized I wasn't going to clown him, wasn't going to play him, wasn't going to, you know, be abusive like a lot of guys because they'd call him chicken wing, you know, flipper and things like that. And I would actually confront people about that, you know, give them the respect, you know, and stuff. And so he signs me up for the AA because I happen to find out he's secretary. So I get him to sign me up. So we go to the AA thing and, um, I'm sitting in the, in the group there and and I took a reading book with me because, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to be here in person, but I'm not going to be here in presence you know, type thing, you know? So I've got my book and stuff. And, um, about the third, they, they have, they go, okay, we've got some new members now. And, uh, they called up one guy and said, could you tell us your story? And the guy gets up there and says, Hey, uh, yeah, my name is like Bill and, you know, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug user and stuff. And they went, yeah, good, Bill. You know, and then got down. The next guy go out of my, you know, my, you know, my name is Jesus and, you know, and I'm a drug addict and da, 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 da. Oh, good, Jesus. And then they go, you know, hey, Morgan, come on up here. And I'm, I'm what? And I look around and everybody's looking at me. And I go, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I. I'm just here. I'm not participating in this shit. No, no, everybody's got to participate. It's part of the thing. You know? So I get up there and I go, okay. And they go, uh, so tell us your name. I said, my name's Morgan Kane. Well, why are you here? I'm here because you weak piss ass motherfuckers can't take care of your own business. And you cry all the time about that. The reason you did this crime or did that crime was because you're a drug addict or an alcohol. Just get right. You're fucked up. Know you're fucked up and leave it at that. Right. And everybody goes, yes, sit down, sit down, sit down. I said, okay, well, thank you. Now that now we've got that worked out. I won't be called up ever again. So we have a break about halfway through. They've had a couple of people get up and do these talks. And, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there looking at my book. He goes, they call you by Rose to come up and get a cup of coffee, you know, and cookies and stuff. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, there's a shadow over me. And I look up, and there's Spike sitting there. And he's like, you know, I'm the sergeant at arms. I go, okay. And he goes, uh, I, I think you've misunderstood what the purpose of this program is. I said, no, I haven't. He goes, well, we're here to help people with their addictions and i said that's fine i said i've got one addiction one addiction only and i don't want to get rid of it and he goes what's that i said motorcycles i said i have absolutely no entire thing of ever getting rid of that addiction (laughs) and he goes well do you think that not having a motorcycle could drive you to drugs or drinking i said no but it could cause me to want to get into somebody's face right and so i stand up now he's thicker than i am and he's about two inches taller than I am, but we're chin to chin. And and he sees it that I may not be the guy that's going to back down and, you know, play the game. He goes, well, we don't want new members to disrupt, be disruptive. I said, look, leave me alone. I'm reading my book. I'm going to get me a cup of coffee. I'm going to be good. 
Okay. And he goes, well, we'll talk later. I was, oh, yeah, okay, we'll talk later. And he walked off. So I get my cup of coffee. And I'm sitting there, you know, and I see him moving around the room. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, crap. You know, he's, he's going to sneak up on me. This is what I'm thinking, right? And he comes over, and all of a sudden he pulls a chair up, and he sits down next to me. He goes, I would like to be your sponsor. My sponsor? He goes, I know that deep inside that you have addictions besides motorcycles. You're just yearning to try out. I tell him, look, no, I'm not. And he goes, well, I see you have tattoos. And I go, yeah. He goes, that's an addiction. He goes, you just don't realize, but that's another addiction you have. I said, no. And he goes, you notice I have a few tattoos. I said, yeah, I've seen that. And he goes, well, do you know why I've got my tattoos? Said, no, I don't know why you got your tattoos. And he goes, well, when I first came to prison, I was very small and I was very pretty. And this one lifer came up to me and said, son, you're going to have a hard road unless you start hitting the iron pile and you make people think you're crazy. And so the guy said, let me help you be crazy. And he tattooed a couple of tattoos on my face. And then people thought I was crazy. And then people left me alone. And then I hit the weight pile and I hit the weight pile. And as I got bigger, other people wanted to work out with me. And then we hit bigger weight. And that's how I got these tattoos on my face. And that's how I got so big. And I go, you know, weightlifting's an addiction. And he goes, well, yeah, it can be if you don't use it right. And I said, well, do you do it right? And he goes, I'm all natural. And I'm looking at him. I go, you, 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 you were going to sell that to me. I said, I'm all natural. I said, my skin is not trying to burst. I said, I walk and my legs don't touch each other and making the corduroy sound as you move, you know? And, and he's like, well, I take protein shakes. Yeah, okay. And I, and I go, okay. And so he goes, well, we'll talk the next time. I said, okay. And he picks a chair and he goes off. I'm sitting there and so the guy leans over and he goes, you know, Spike's really tough. I go, he's really tough. He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, he's got more than 100 tattoos. Yeah. He goes, well, you can't, you, you, if you're, if you're, you can't be tough if you don't have that many tattoos. So, well, then I guess I'll never be tough because I don't have 100 tattoos. And, and he goes, well, I'm just letting you know because, you know, if he doesn't like you, you're going to know it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm good with that. Yeah. So, so I go back and I get to the yard and the secretary comes up to me. And he says, what the hell was that? And he goes, everybody knows I signed you up. And everybody wanted to know, why did I bring the asshole here? I told him, I said, look, I didn't mean to have anything to do with you. Didn't mean to put anything on you. I said, I'll get it squared away. And he goes, well, he goes, personally, I liked it. Because he goes, you know, some of those guys are just in there for the damn chrono. And they're not really even working, even though they do have anything. He goes, but... He goes, at least you put it forth the fact that, you know, you didn't think. So we had this lady named Kathy Bethel, and she was the counselor, CC2, correctional counselor 2, who oversaw the program. Next day, I get called to her office. And she says, you know, I'm going to tell you right now that if you want to get a decent chrono out of this, you have to attend everyone, and you have to participate whenever you're called upon. okay and i said okay i'll put forth an effort she goes good 
She goes, so what's your drug of choice? I said, Harley Davidson. <laughs> and she goes, no, 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 your drug. I said, Harley Davidson. I said, you don't realize I eat, drink, and sleep motorcycles. And if you cut me, I bleed 60 weight. And she's like, oh, you're going to be, you know, a hard case. I said, no. I said, I don't drink and I don't do drugs. I don't smoke cigarettes. She goes, but you're a biker. I said, yeah. And she goes, and that somehow you're, you know, able to avoid these vices. I said, look, when I took Biker 101, those were not options of, you know, that I had to take to pass the course. And she goes, what? I said, yeah, exactly. I said, you don't, if you've never been there, you're not going to understand. If you have, I don't have to explain. Yeah. So she goes, okay, well, I'm expecting you to be more participating next time. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so a couple of weeks go by. I've been in the, into the thing. Nobody, nobody's come approach me. I haven't been pulled up or anything. Been a few weeks. All of a sudden Spike gets up there and he's doing his little stuff. And he goes, and I have a volunteer tonight. <laughs> Morgan Kane's going to volunteer tonight to come up and talk about his addiction. And so, <laughs> so I go up there and uh, I go, hi, I'm Morgan Kane. They go, hi, Morgan. Yeah. Okay. 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 And they go, uh, so he goes, so he's standing kind of doing the, the co-hosting type thing. And he goes, uh, so when did you first know you had an addiction? I say interutral. He goes, what? I say interutral. He goes, what the hell is that? I said, well, that was when my mom was pregnant with me. He goes, so your mom used drugs? I said, no. He goes, well, then how did you know you had a problem? I said, I didn't say I had a problem. I said, that's why I knew I had an addiction. And he goes, well, what, how did you know that? I said, well, because I was born on the Isle of Man. I was living off the corner of Hillbury, which is off the, morning, the mountain course. And I could smell petrol leaking into my mom. And I could hear the motorcycles roar in the ambiotic fluid. And everybody in the room is like staring at me with dead eyes. <laughs> I right? bet. And he goes, well, I don't think we, I don't think we quite understand. I said, well, it's, I'll make it simple. When I was five years old, I was given this motorcycle toy. It was a little gold toy. And I said, and it was my favorite toy. It's really the only toy I ever remember. And I carried it everywhere. It's with me. I said, and I would think that that would mean that's an addiction. I mean, you're always looking for the next high. My high was every time I opened my hand, I'd see my little toy. I was happy. I, thought, hey, I don't think that's good. Okay, let me tell you. I said, <laughs> I met this guy named Joe, and he was a biker. And he lived right down the road. I was eight years old. And every time he'd go by, I'd wave at him like a madman. And one day he stopped, and I told him, man, I said, you got a great motorcycle. And he goes, have you ever ridden one? I said, no, but I want to. And he walked up the door and he asked my, the grandma, Toby, who was taking care of me, if he could take me for a ride. And she said, yeah. So the next day he came over, I got on the back of his Harley and we ripped off down back, black, you know, baseline road, no helmets, because of course we didn't need helmets back then. I'm holding on for dear life onto his denim jacket and we're just going. And he goes, I said, I'm telling you what, it was probably better than any high anybody's ever gotten from a drug. And I said, because I still remember that today. I said, most people can't remember one high from the other when they've done drugs. I said, the best they can remember is they, you know, that somewhere along the line, they lost their clothes, but they don't know beyond that. Right. And he's like, 
Okay, I think we've heard enough from Morgan tonight. You know, and he starts clapping. <laughs> and, and, and I walk back, and everybody's just kind of following me with, you know, like, what the hell? Yeah. So he comes up to me a couple days later. On the He catches me over at the gym. And uh, I'm not part of the weightlifting club and the power weightlifting club, so I can't use the... They, they had, um, like, these universal machines, and they had, you know, um, all the the big, you know, power weights and stuff. So I had to use the little free weights and stuff, you know, 90 pounds for pullovers and, you know, things like that. No, no, nothing above 90 pounds in dumbbells and, you know, nothing beyond about 300 pounds in barbell stuff, you know, so I I was limited to what I could play with. (laughs) And he comes over and he goes, you know, uh, the coach would like to talk to you. I went, Oh God. I said, is he, is he a sponsor too? He goes, no, 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 no. So I come over and he tells me, how would you like to be my equipment boy? I said, well, I'm not buddy's boy. And he goes, well, equipment man. I said, yeah, no, I got, I got a job. I, I'm good with it. You know, and he goes like, well, you know, he goes, I see you come here pretty regular. I said, yeah. And he goes, and, and you're in pretty good shape, but I could get you in better shape. And I'm looking around at his power team. And I said, like those guys, he goes, well, yeah, I could get you up to that. I said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to wear it look like that. And he goes, well, I could get you into my weightlifting team. And these were the guys that were all ripped and, you know, all that stuff. But most of them were really small, kind of scrawny guys as far as build. They were what, you know, because you, you have, uh, they were what they call ectomorphic. And you have ectomorphic, and those are the guys that, you know, really have to work, but then they get really good cuts. Yeah. And then you have like your mesiomorphs and they're the perfect bodybuilders. They just think about weights and they get the six pack and, and all that. And I follow more on the endomorphic side, which means that I can get thick. I just can't get the cuts that other people have necessarily. And so I'm explaining this to him. And it was really funny because he looks at me and he goes, so you've done some reading. I tell him, yeah, I've, I've done some reading. I said, also, I've never had a weight pile injury. As I knew a number of his guys did. And he goes, well, how's that? I said, because I had a Navy medical background and uh, I know how far to push myself and how far not to. And I stop before and then make sure I have heal up time and all this stuff. And he goes, well, then you would be a good part of this team because you could help me. You could be a junior coach. And I'm like, yeah, that's not happening either. You know, we're not going to do it. So I come out and I'm walking back from the gym and spikes it. And there were two cups of coffee. He goes, can I give you a cup of coffee? I said, you've been sitting out here. He goes, yeah. I said, is it hot? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I just stung it up over here with this socket. And he goes, so it's hot. So we're sitting there talking and he's like, you know, you're different. He goes, I haven't figured you out yet. He goes, you're not this hardcore convict guy, but you don't want to be a part of any of the prison cultural stuff, but everybody says you're pretty decent. I said, okay. And he goes, you know, I kind of like you. And he goes, I don't know why. I just kind of like you. Okay. I said, well, I appreciate the future if you just didn't call me up on stage like that. If you're going to do it, give me a heads up beforehand. And he goes, yeah, but you're so much fun when we get you up there because you, 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 you don't know what you're going to say next. You know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's been my, I've been going to him for like six months and we've interacted, we've interacted stuff. All of a sudden we find out that 
Spike's getting ready to go to the Borough Board. And he's really excited. He's got an outside sponsor that's writing letters for him. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's meeting uh, a few people that are, you know, have come in as, as outside guests who spoke to him and given stuff like that. And then he tells us, that, yeah, and he's and his uncle's going to give him a job. So we go to we go to the meeting, and he's going to tell everybody all this stuff, right? And he's everybody's clapping for him. He says, "And I've got a job waiting for me." He goes, "My uncle sells vacuum cleaners door to door, and I'm going to get a job doing that." So, and everybody's clapping, yay! And so he gets off. The break happens. I go get a cup of coffee. I walk over to him. I said, Spike, I said, you know, you're a decent guy, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you came to my door trying to sell vacuum cleaners, <laughs> looking like you do, I said, I'd have, I'd have you out of there in the back of a police car. I said, it's simply, I said, you're too big. You're too scary looking. The average citizen will, will be just completely frozen. He goes, but they won't even have heard my, my spiel. My uncle's giving me a spiel. I said, yeah. I said, you know, yeah, I don't know how you're going to do that. You just aren't going to be able to do this, right? So anyway, so he goes to the board and they basically tell him the same thing. Tell him, yeah, that's not the kind of job we want you to have. Okay. So I've been in AA now about a year. And, um, uh, he gets up there one time. He talks about, I've got me a girlfriend now. And he goes, and she's lovely. And he goes, uh, we've applied for family visits because we want children. And he goes, but we got to wait till we get married and we're going to get married in a couple of weeks and stuff. And I've invited this guy and this guy, two of the guys in the group to be, his, be at his wedding because you're allowed two other inmates to be there. So the day of his wedding was Sunday. And after the wedding ceremony, they all go out to the visiting room and they can have like a little out of the vending machines. They can have a little party type thing. And they're sitting over there. I happen to have my partner Dwarf and his gal come up and we're sitting over here. And uh, so, so Dwarf and I were talking and he, you know, he's my, one of my club brothers and we're talking and he, uh, he goes, look at that gal over there. And I said, yeah. And he goes, God, she's a slob. I go, what? And he goes, look at her feet. And she had flip-flops on, but she had dropped the flip-flops off, had her feet up on a table where people put the food stuff, and there was dirt falling off her feet onto the table, Ooh. right? And uh, he goes, man, he goes, she's really nasty. And his lady had said she'd gone to the toilet, and this gal had been in there and uh, was asking anybody if they had any deodorant she could borrow, you know? And... Uh, said that she had this, as they said, you know, fly attraction to her, right? And and I'm saying, well, you know, that's Spike's uh, new wife. He just married her today. And the lady goes, she got married in a potato sack because of the dress she was wearing was just like brown and yellow. And, you know, it was just really, really sad looking type clothes, right? And I'm like, well, you know each his own i can't i can't make any judgment i've i've had two bad marriages i you know i can't i'm not the person to make judgment so anyway he leaves so i come back out and spike and i are going through the strip out going back from visits and he's like did you see my wife i said well yeah he goes well, real good looker huh and i said yeah in your eyes i'm sure she's the most beautiful thing in the world and he goes yes she is and i went good for you 
you know, <laughs> and I Bless get back. Him. And as soon as I get back to yard, everybody's got the word out about, you know, how just, or, you know, horrible. And one of the guys says, yeah, he goes, my wife was in the bathroom and said that she had, to, she took out her teeth to rinse them off before she put them back in. Apparently she had no teeth. She had false teeth. Now, whether he knew that or not, I don't know. But anyway, but he'd met her through one of his cousins, sisters, girlfriends, that type of one of those things where just some gal. So anyway, sure enough, another year, another six months goes by. He's going back up to the board again. Now he's got a new job and now he's got a wife and she's pregnant. You know, they've had their family visit and she's like four months pregnant. So he's going to the board and uh, he goes in and he doesn't tell us what his job's going to be this time, right? He just leaves that out. He comes back and he's got this big smile. The very He doesn't tell anybody after he comes back board, doesn't tell anybody, he's just got a big smile. Two days later, we go back to the AA meeting. He comes in, he goes, I've got to talk, I've got to talk. He gets up there and he says, they found me suitable. He goes, I'm going to be going home. He goes, they like my job. And everybody's like, okay, what's your job? He goes, mixing cement said well yeah that's uh that would be a job that would probably fit you really well he goes yeah my wife's dad is the one that hired me because he's really happy he's going to have a grandchild well that's 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 good and he goes yep he goes i'm looking forward to it he goes especially when we do our trips to mexico to get the bags of cement and bring them back over And there's like this dull silence. And we're like, mm, there's like cement companies here in California. And, you know, you know and uh, he goes, and he's going to pay me $50 an hour. And all I've got to do is help load the truck. <laughs> yeah. So he comes out and I ask him, I said, <clears throat> have you met, have you met your father-in-law? He goes, oh yeah, he came up. He took a look at me and said, yep, you're the guy I need. He goes, you, you, you can lift the bags and, uh, you can make sure nobody comes up and molests a truck and take, tries to take our stuff. He goes, I told him you betcha. (laughs) (laughs) And then sure enough, 90 days later, spike tooled out the gate. Yeah. And, uh, Went off to have his nice little new life. About six months after that, I get counsel pulled in by the counselor and she tells me, well, you've done two years. You don't have a history of drug and alcohol or, you know, issues. And we have people on the waiting list that do. We'd like to you to give up your seat. And I said, I'm not giving up my seat to you. Give me a chrono for the board that says I participate. She burned me off a chrono right then. I got out. They, I took it at that little board guy. He was happy. We were all good and stuff. About eight years later, a guy comes up and he says, hey, you remember Spike? I said, yeah, I remember Spike. He goes, you know what happened to him? I said, yeah, he went out and he got a job with his father-in-law, you know, and stuff. He goes, well, yeah, that worked out pretty well for about three years. Says, uh, apparently, you know, he got grabbed up by the Federales in Mexico because apparently their cement was coming out of Colombia. And he was at a dock loading up the truck. And uh, funny enough, 
he was the only American there with all the Mexican workers because his father-in-law had basically let him handle all the transportation. And um, yeah, so he wrote a couple letters to a couple of guys saying, boy, it's really messed up down here. He goes, you know, they've given me, you know, more years than I can count. And they did it all in Spanish, which makes it worse because I don't be sure how much time I'm doing, you know. And uh, yeah, so. You are literally the best storyteller ever. That was what about half an hour yes <laughs> yeah and anyone anyone who wants to come on the podcast take, take notes yeah because take notes. when you're telling the story tell it and just let us sit here and not <laughs> i actually just yeah I was, I was like this to begin with and i was just like no nah, sorry i'm back <laughs> the way he just sets the table describes everything just takes you through it stories at length we don't have to say anything no, we ask you a question, you give us a 10-second answer and make it real pain in the ass for us to And tell us to read it in your book. Yeah, but if um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go with um, Which, this one here. Um, yeah. Stupid youngsters, they're dealings with a house angel. Yeah. And where was that? <laughs> that was at Avenal. Avenal. Yeah. Oh, wow. Let's go with that one. So um, I, get tra- I get transferred to Avenal State Prison. And um, initially, Avenal was... Ch- the only thing in Avenal prior to this prison really built there was two truck stops and about 50 hookers. That was really, that was the main reason for everybody stopping and, and thing. I mean, you had good truck stops and then you had the hookers, you know, um, there were a lot of mobile home, empty mobile homes out there. You could rent them for $50 a month and you know, nobody asking what you were doing there and stuff. And, um, when I get transferred down there and, um, one of the first things I find out, is they uh, they start sending CYA rollovers down to us, California Youth Authority, youth prison guys. Well, normally, if you were sentenced to the CYA, you could be basically as young as like 12, maybe 10, depending on the crime. And if you stayed out of trouble, you could actually stay there till you were like 25. But most people got kicked out around 18 to 21. But... You did have that faction of guys who wanted to be a lot more than they wanted to be all they could be. And um, we'd be getting kicked out when they were 16. And uh, I was really lucky. I, I got one of these 16-year-old kids. I got this kid named Kina. And he was from the town of Avenal, which was even more amazing because, you know, like I said, pretty much any children born in Avenal were from working women. Uh, <laughs> and so, and so uh, but... With Kina, the interesting thing was he did know who his father was because his his mom actually worked in one of the truck stops and his dad had been a truck driver. And funny enough, I'd actually done time with his father in CMC a couple of years earlier. And uh, But Kina comes in <laughs> and he walks up to me and he tells me, which bunk's mine? Well, I'm on the bottom bunk because this is all dorm stuff. And I go, which bunk do you think is yours? And he goes, well, I'd like the bottom one. I said, you know, that's pretty nice, but that one's up there is yours. He goes, well, you know, I sleepwalk sometime. I said, well, then you'll sleep fall sometimes too, because when you come <laughs> off that, it's going to be solid concrete when you land, but it'll be all right. I mean, he's like, you know, you could be nicer to me. I said, I don't even know you. He goes, hey, you got a cigarette? I said, how old are you? He goes, I'm 16. Well, there was a sign up saying that if you gave coffee or cigarettes or tea 
to anybody under 18, you could be written up for it because you're contributing to a minor. I told him, no, you can't, you can't have a cigarette. He goes, let me have a shot of coffee. So, oh, I drink coffee when I'm on the streets. Yeah, you're not on the streets right now, right? And I said, so how long have you been down? He goes, I've got three years in. Oh, okay, yeah. Got three years in. And at, at, at this point in time, you know, I've got working on like 12. <laughs> and so, and I go, yeah. And he goes, uh, yeah. And I go, so, so what'd you do? He goes, man, I'm telling you, this is a fucked up deal. He goes, I shouldn't be even put in prison. I go, okay. He goes, so I met this girl, you know, when I was 12 and I was madly in love with her, but her family wouldn't have anything to do with my family because my mom and my dad had been in prison. Okay. And he goes, and so she was having her 13th birthday party and I wasn't invited. So I went and talked to some friends of my dad's and I told them, you know, this is the, I want to go to that and they won't let me go to it. They said, well, we're going to help you get, show them who's boss. <clears throat> so they put me in the trunk of an, an Impala and gave me an, uh, an M16 and we drove by the house and I started shooting at the house because I'm going to tell him. And he goes, and then all of a sudden, they hit the gas. The car goes down. It hits one of the potholes there. The gun slip, flies out of my hand, goes out of the car, gets caught on the, the trunk lock. Trunk comes down, locks me in, you know, and the gun's bouncing down the street and they're driving down the highway. They pull on and they're going right down the highway. And not more than a mile later, there's a half a dozen highway patrol cars behind them because they see this m- m- rifle outside the car bouncing down the highway, right? So they get pulled over. The two grown-ups said, we didn't know he was in the trunk. We didn't know he had a gun. We don't even know who the kid is. And he goes, and I told him, but Uncle Eugene, you gave me the gun. He punched me in front of those cops. He goes, you would think he would protect me because I'm just a kid. I said, you just ratted him out. Well, yeah, because he was lying. He said, no, no, you just ratted out the guy who gave you the gun and drove you around. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go outside. He takes off and walks out to the yard. <laughs> and he came down with like initially about seven, eight other guys. And they all got put in different places. So they weren't like together. <clears throat> so we're all, we're all like, okay, this is great. This is just fucking great. So we got one other guy, but he's on the other side of the thing. And, uh, I'll give him credit. He was actually realized the errors of his way. He got a job in the library, spent every time moment reading and stayed away from all the stupid stuff. So the guy he was bunked with was really happy because he hardly ever saw him. So a couple of weeks later, another crew of these guys get kicked out of the ways. And <clears throat> I come walking in and Keena's sitting there on my bunk there's two other guys sitting on my bunk and there's two guys sitting up on the upper bunk and they've spilled tobacco on my, my blanket and they, you know, and they're drinking coffee and stuff that I don't know where they got it from. I walked in, I said, what the fuck are you doing on my bunk? And the guy goes, well, you know, we're just kicking here. And this is one of the guys that's just sitting there that I've never seen before. I said, get off my bunk. And the guy get up and goes, you know, you, you know, you could be dealt with. I go, what? And I'm looking at this guy and Kena gets up and goes, man, I'm sorry, I should have asked. No, no, you shouldn't have asked. You shouldn't have been on it. It's a big difference. Ask means you think I would actually say, okay. 
And then I pulled my blanket off and I, I handed it to him. I said, go get me a new, new blanket. Oh man, go get me a new blanket. Go to the clothing room, get me a new blanket. And so he goes trucking out. The other four go out and they're out in the day room. And, and the funny thing about the Avenal, because it's a dorm living thing, they have a TV on all day long in there. And they have one that's basically for the whites, one that's for the Mexicans, and basically one for the blacks. So the white one has got all the real intellectual programs on. It's got Power Rangers. It's got Big, big Bad Beetleborgs. It's got, no, no, it's got all these cartoon stuff on, right? And, you, and when you walk in and you see guys in their 30s and 40s and 50s going, Big Bad Beetleborgs, you know, or they're singing the Power Rangers songs, you're going, oh, God, get me out of here. So I walk out and I see these four guys and they're standing over there watching these, the TV with them. And I go into the, the toilet area and, you know, it's like an open communal toilet and it's got these little plastic screens between them. And um, I, I, I walk in there and I'm washing my hands and uh, this one guy, Tank, the one that spoke to me, comes walking up and he goes, uh, Here's a message from our sponsor. So, Jen, have you ever, like, signed up for a gym or something or other, and then they just keep taking this money out of your bank? Yes, it's really, really frustrating. Um, you know, if you want to cancel, you want to cancel straight away. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's something that drives me mad. Absolutely mental. Of course, it's a business scam out to get you. <laughs> Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. (laughs) (laughs) Because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions. Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel just link your accounts and truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap and your truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to stay on top of your spending with truebill get an effortless breakdown of your finances to see where your money is going and how to improve Truebill will notify you of important events that need your attention so you're never caught off guard again. Like Jennifer B, who says, With your help, our family has saved $587 this year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash sean s-h-a-u-n so go right now to truebill.com forward slash sean it could save you thousands per year thank you for supporting our sponsors it's very important for the podcast production and the links as usual are in the description box below this video you know you better start giving us the respect we have coming so what respect he goes, well, we're doing hard time. I said, you're not doing hard time. You don't know what a fucking hard time is. And he's like, <clears throat> you know, some someday somebody's going to run up on you. <clears throat> so, okay. So I walk out. And about four or five hours later, I come in. 
and I see him in the toilet taking a leak. And I run smooth up on there and I slap the plastic thing. And he goes, what did you do that for? I said, because somebody can run up on you. And he's like, man, you're lucky my boys weren't here. I said, what do you need boys for? I said, I don't need boys. He said, no, I'm an old man. Well, you know, because, you know, because that's how we do it. You know, so you, you have to run in a pack. <coughs> he goes, yeah, because <coughs> we have to have to make sure we, we, we can win. <coughs> <coughs> so I go, <coughs> well, that's not always the best way to do it. So things go by and I'm like, okay, this, uh, <coughs> we, uh, Keenan gets moved off my bunk. He moves into another dorm. So he's with a couple of these other guys. So they all kind of hang out and they're always hitting up people for thing. And they started picking on old guys with gray hair. Because, you know, if you're in prison and you're old and you got gray hair, you can only be in prison for one thing. You have to be a pedophile. It's the only thing you can be in prison for if you're old and you've got gray hair. So now they're pressuring guys for coffee and tobacco and stuff, you know, or they're going to beat them up, you know, and stuff. Well, in one of the other buildings, we had this guy with long gray hair. He walked. He basically had like a dragging leg, kind of a walking, but he was kind of dragged the leg a little bit. Always wore like this really kind of, I would say almost like a dirty, raggedy type jacket. You know, you could see he'd had it for quite a while and he had uh, jeans were the same thing, worn down at the bottom and his boots were all scuffed up and all that stuff. But he'd go out to the weight pile and he would always work out by himself. Now, powers of observation i've learned a long time ago with youngsters they're not really good i think they have a real blindness in a lot of things because this guy would use 90 pound dumbbells to do you know champagnes off his chest and this guy was doing inclined benches of a you know 200 225 without a spotter and you know he would sit there and curl with like 75 pound dumbbells in each arm. And, and so this is just one of those things you think maybe this isn't the guy you want to go over and, and say things to. So one day he's going out the weight pile and I'm on the weight pile. <clears throat> there was a couple of black guys there that I've known for a long time that were working out. And there's only like four or five of us on the weight pile this time. Cause you had to get a weight lifting card at Avenal to work, get on the weight pile. If you didn't have one, if you got caught on the way, pal, you were kicked off, you all know, getting all kinds of stuff. So suddenly these six guys come over, tanks leading them. Keen is there. These other guys are all there. And they walk up to him and they said, hey, check this out, you fucking chest. And on oh, next thing you knew, tanks got, this guy's grabbed him by the throat and has lifted him physically while on the incline bench, physically lifted him up off his feet, <laughs> sits up and throws him to the ground and says, What's the next word coming out of your fucking mouth? And he's holding a 75-pound dumbbell in his hand, right? And Iron Mike and and Big Juan, <clears throat> two black guys that were there, and Juan had 26-inch arms, and Mike had 24-inch gut biceps. They come running over, and they said, Look, look, they ain't worth it. And he tells them, Did you hear what they were about to call me? Me! They were going to call me that, he's saying. He go, and they're going, yeah, they, you, they're, they're idiots. They're stupid. They, you know, they're kids. They don't know what they're talking about. 
And one of the other guys go, yeah, you're just lucky you got, you know, got that grip on Tank because if he'd gotten a hold of you, you'd have been done. And Tank's still trying to get his fucking breath back. You can see the fear in his eyes like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. You're about to get me, you know, smashed, right? And the other guys are all standing there. And, and, the, and the guy who's mouthing now is going, you know, if you just pay us a pack of tobacco every week and you give us a jar of coffee, we can let you stay on our yard. The guy gets up and he, t- he's, he takes off his jacket and he grabs a sweatshirt and he pulls his sweatshirt off. And it says Hell's Angels across his stomach and chest here, right? And there's four bullet holes on, <laughs> that you can see on him. You can see a big rip in his arm here, right? Where it's been scarred up and stuff. And uh, you're looking at it and, it, and the thing was at the time, <laughs> you know, it's got a, it's got a Colorado state patch on his side, right? Come to find out, <clears throat> the reason he dragged that leg is that the shot, cops shot him off his motorcycle and he went down at about 75 miles an hour. And so he tore a bunch of muscles in his leg and on his arm and stuff. But they shot him four times in the back on his motorcycle and he survived it. He didn't have spotters because the only people he trusted were other angels and we didn't have any other angels on the yard. It's real simple, very understandable from my standpoint. He tells these guys, if I ever see one of you motherfuckers around me again, he goes, you won't be breathing, right? And he goes, get away from me. And they all get off the weight pile, right? But they're all standing across the field and you can see they're talking like they're plotting something. And you're like, they fucking haven't learned, right? They just, just haven't learned. So for... For about a week, every time I'd go out to the yard, you'd see these guys following him as he went and walk, was he walking in the yard. And, and they're going, hey, can we talk to you? Hey, can we talk to you? Get away from me. You know, he, he's going around. Because <laughs> they have a, we had, we had like uh, a chapel area, right? And they would show films up in here. <laughs> he goes in to see this film and they get in the row behind him and, and they're going, hey, it's really cool that you're a hell's angel. Uh, can, can, can we prospect? And the next thing you know, there's our bells and alarms and all this <laughs> shit going off. I'm on the yard, but guys that were in there were telling me the conversation going on. Fucking dozen cops go running in there. About half of them come running back out, yelling for, you know, for them to call for medical and shit. You know, next thing you know, you see them dragging the, the angel out, right? And while they're dragging him out, he still has one of the guys by the mouth. He's got his hand in this guy's mouth, death grip on him, dragging him. The cops are hitting him on his arm, trying to get him to break. Finally, they break his grip on him, you know, and get him up, gaffle him up and take him off. And they take him to the hole. And they charged him for assaults on minors. No. Yeah. (laughs) He got charged for, for doing assaults on minors. Right. And, the aw for our yard came on and and did a big announcement saying now you older guys need to learn how to mentor these young guys you know and you have to realize that they're still underage and you know they may not act like you think they should so treat them nice and guys are telling fuck you throwing shit up there at them and stuff and tell them you know look then get them out of our prison 
If they don't know how to act, get them out of the prison because they're going to start getting stabbed. Just what's going to happen, right? <laughs> they end up slapping the guy with like another eight years, you know, for for because a couple of the guys were were pretty badly hurt, you know. And uh, <laughs> I re- I remember the guy that he was bunked with that had the upper bunk came over and said, you know, uh, I've got all this stuff. I don't know what the hell to do with it. I said, well. If you got his stuff, look through, see if you can find an address, pack it up, mail it to the address. He goes, well, who's going to pay me for that? I said, I wouldn't worry about that right now, but I said, I'll guarantee you, if you do this right, somebody's going to appreciate it, right? So he writes a note and says, hey, look, this is what happened, blah, 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 blah. Because when you get through, first got thrown in the hole, it was like two weeks before you can write anybody and you can't make calls and stuff. <clears throat> so anyway... He sends it out. Oh, I guess it was like six months later. He gets called to the package room. He never gets packaged. He gets called to the package room. And there's a 30-pound package of food and clothes and all this stuff in there. And there's a little note in there saying, you know, thanks. That's all. Just thanks. And he's like, I don't know who the hell it came from because it had a name <clears throat> he didn't recognize and stuff. I said, I'll guarantee you that was because you sent all that stuff. Because he had pictures of other Hell's Angel brothers and he had a bunch of other stuff you know, his property and stuff and thing. And, um, anyway, th- that guy, he did get out of the, there, but they gave him a transfer within, <laughs> within about two weeks, they put him on a different yard <clears throat> and it, it started up again where youngsters were now enthralled with wanting to talk to this guy and they're not understanding. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to deal with them. They, they end up transferring to him solid ad. And from what last I'd heard from a couple other guys up there, he got up there and there were a couple other angel brothers and they just kind of, hung out together and they basically they they deal with their own thing but they they wouldn't deal with this <clears throat> now kena as i said he'd been my bunkie the thing about kena like i said i knew his dad and uh when he was telling me he goes about yeah whose dad was and stuff and i said yeah i remember your dad and he goes yeah he man he he's a really bad motherfucker isn't he i said no he's not i said basically he stayed to himself he avoided any conflicts he could he goes yeah but you know he was done wrong he goes because when he shot that motherfucker, he goes, that park ranger didn't have to testify against him. And he, he shot a guy. He got a, a, um, a great bodily injury. He didn't, get a, didn't kill the guy. So he only did a couple of years. He gets out. He went up to the National Park, King, <laughs> Kingsview, Kingsview National Park, and uh, outside of Fresno, and uh, got into a group of visitors that were all going around and came upon that park ranger and gunned the park ranger down in front of everybody. Now to show you just how smart he is, he shoots the guy six times, starts to reload the gun and gets jumped by a half a dozen guys in the group. Now he's in a federal prison because this is a U S national park, blah, blah, blah. So he now goes there and now he's got a life sentence because he killed a park ranger, which is like killing a police officer stuff. Now, while I'm there, Keena's telling me, yeah, people, people aren't going to punk my family. And he goes, my brother's in for doing a drive-by shooting. Yeah. He goes, that's right. He goes, he went and shot up a college dormitory because a girl wouldn't date him. And I said, and how did he get caught? And he goes, well, the girl started throwing shoes and stuff down at him and he was on a stairwell and he started running down the stairwell and he tripped and fell and broke both of his kneecaps and, and his shoulder. 
and he couldn't crawl away fast enough before the, the security could get him. Yeah, that he goes, I go, where's he? <clears throat> he goes, oh, you know, he, he's down at Tehachapi. Oh, okay. And um, he goes, and right now he goes, I can't get anything from my mom because she's doing time right now. And I said, well, what's she doing time for? He goes, well, because she cut up one of the whores that wasn't going to pay her money for working at the truck stop. And I said, yeah, you know, this is a functional family, you know? <laughs> and he goes, well, we're, we're well known. Yeah, but I don't want to think what you're well known for. And he goes, what are you trying to say? I said, you know, you know, you're kind of like really idiots, right? And, and he's like, well, if my dad was here, I said, if your dad was here, he would just look at me the way you're looking at me. He wouldn't say anything more to me. And then he goes, well, you know, you, you just think that you're something special. And I said, no, I don't think I'm something special. I just think I'm more than what you are at the moment. <clears throat> so a few days later, he comes up and he goes, I've decided I'm going to change. And I went, oh, yeah? And he goes, and I want you to teach me how to lift weights. There you do. He goes, yeah. He goes, I figured out that I can lift the same amount of weight you can. You think so? He goes, yeah. Okay, so I said, well, meet me tomorrow. So I get him out on the weight pile. I was doing 150-pound suicides off my forehead with a back arm bar. So I go, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to grab the bar, pull it up, do this, take it back, pull it up, do this, right? I said, but what we're going to do is we're going to start you here so that you, you can get the rhythm. Okay, so I'm holding it, spotting him, but I'm standing off to the side for the front. I go, okay, take it over, takes it over. The whole body goes off the bench, you know, flips off backwards. He goes, what happened? I said, you didn't have your feet planted. He did this about seven times. I said, maybe we ought to start with a little bit less weight. And he's like, well, how much less weight? Well, let's just try, trust me on this. Let's try this. I said, we'll go with 30 pounds. 30 pounds? I said, have you ever lifted 30 pounds before? He goes, well, no. I said, well, let's go with 30 pounds. So he takes it, gets it over, brings it up, and bounces it off his forehead. Gets this nice big bruise across his forehead. Said that's why we're doing thirty pounds, and then I kept kept him from doing that again, and uh, then I got him to do some flies and some other things. Next morning, I get up for breakfast, and I go, "Come on, Keenan." He goes, "I'll come along in a minute." Okay, so I go off to breakfast. I come back; he's still in bed. I said, "Man, you missed breakfast." Yeah, I'm okay. I go, "What's wrong? I can't move my arms." And his arms had actually swollen up from too much fluid building up in it from, from overworking them. And he goes, and he looked like Popeye. His arms were all, but he's like, yeah, I, I can't get my arms up. And I'm like, you broke him. I broke him. Yeah. I broke the kid. (laughs) So anyway, he tells, uh, he goes to one of the cops and tells the cops that, uh, he doesn't like Avenal. Avenal is not a friendly place. He wants to go back to YA. Right. And I don't know. They talked about something. Anyway, he goes and he gets moved to another yard where there's more of the youngsters than on our yard. And then gets caught up in a, in a melee with guys in wheelchairs. You know, they, cause they had what's called the pick We called it the pick apart yards, yard five at Avenal. <clears throat> they had all the guys in wheelchairs. 
And you used to have the problem with guys in wheelchairs when they'd get mad at each other. They'd roll up, lock the wheelchairs, and throw themselves up and swing for as long as they could before they fall back into their wheelchairs. <clears throat> and some of them, some of them would have it to where they would pull their arm of their chair up. And, they like to and stop rubbing chairs. Huh? Start rubbing chairs. Well, they, they'd try to rub that, but what they would do is they'd, just, they'd run their chairs up as close as they could. And like I said, and they don't have belts on them. And they'd throw, throw themselves, push themselves up because they're usually got upper body. And, and then they would fight. But there was a few guys that had taken the arms out of their chairs and gotten sharpened up on the cement so they could actually try to stab somebody. But to be in the pick-apart yard was a privilege because you could work at PI Metal Fab. So you got paid good money. You could you know, make up to 90 cents an hour if you got to lead positions. But to get there, you had to sleep on the upper bunks because you had to, part of your job was help you get your, your handicap bunkie ready for the day. You know, and that could entail a number of different things, you know, because some of them had colostomy bags and some of them had pee bags and, you know, and stuff like that. But anyway, they got over there and what ended up happening is this group of wheelchair guys and this group of wheelchair guys had issues. And what, what the issues were, I never knew, never understood, but they went to their... Never heard anything like this before in my life. Yeah. Wheelchair prison gang wars. <laughs> and, 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 these, and these guys would actually, they actually got their bunkies who were able-bodied to basically get in there and help, help fight, you know? Oh, so, so some of the guys were fighting the guys in the wheelchairs, and some were fighting the guys that weren't in wheelchairs, but it had this big melee on, the, on this yard of about, of about 40 people, and probably about 15 of those were in wheelchairs or so. Yeah, we've lost yeah. Sean. Yeah, so yeah, and and because of that, he didn't get to go to where he wanted. He ended up going being sent to Hatchery Max because apparently he was one of the silly guys that had put a couple of cans of stew in a sock and uh, was cracking people with. And so each can of, is a pound can. So you got two pounds of of weight wrapped up in a pair of socks, and uh, it's like putting a lock in sock only a bit worse and. Uh, he clocked a few people and that and caused some major damage and they wrote him, got him a new beef, got him salt with deadly weapons, got him, you know, and they, they ended up tagging him up as, as being in part of a disruptive group because they couldn't say gang because they weren't actually identified as an actual gang, but they were a disruptive group. And then he got shipped to Tatchby and I never got to see him again. These stories, <clears throat> these stories are not ending well for the protagonists. But oh. Jamie Morgan Kane is on fire. This is like the energy we saw him in podcast one. Mind-blowing content that we've never, ever heard before. <laughs> Wheelchair Definitely. prison gang wars. So wherever you want to go. Oh. Oh, gonna... <laughs> well, what's the next prison <laughs> one? Many, well, they're all, they're all these. Are all prison. <laughs> they're all prison. Uh, they're all prison. Uh, yeah, we can go with Rory. Many more Rory. Um, yeah. SQ. What is this? San Quentin. Okay. Oh, San Quentin. So... <clears throat> The guy, I met this guy, and this may be a bit hard for a lot of younger people to know, but there was an actor named Rory Calhoun. He was a Western actor, and he was a pretty decent actor. <clears throat> well, this guy, when I first got to San Quentin, I, I get put in, in uh, a blo- uh, Alpine section, you know, and it's A block, and it's South, South block, A section. I go in, and the cop tells me, <clears throat> go see Rory. And uh, I look over, and there's this guy. Sitting out in front of a cell, he's got shorts on, he's got six-inch tall high cowboy boots on, and he's, he's got a leather vest on, a tank top, and he's got a Stetson hat. 
sitting in a recliner chair out in front of the cell, petting a cat, right? And I'm looking at the guy and I said, him? He goes, yeah. And I said, is he an inmate? And he goes, yeah, he's the lead porter in the building. I went, oh, okay. <clears throat> I walk over. I go, Rory? He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'm moving in and I'm up on third tier, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay, let me get your fish kit. And he gets up and I'm looking in his cell. And in his cell, he's got a fish tank there. He's got like this like knitted uh, you know, quilt on his bed, knitted bed cover. And he's got one of these lights that has the chain where the cord goes through it. And it says Coca-Cola on it, right? Hanging up in his cell, you know? And the cat's sitting in the chair there. And he comes back and he gives me a blanket and a couple blankets and some other stuff. And, and I go, that's your cell? He goes, yeah. I go, okay. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, matter of fact, last month I was in better cells than penitentiaries. Okay. Uh, and he goes, oh, you didn't get the joke. You know, better homes and gardens, you know, better pen- cells and penitentiaries. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I get that. <clears throat> I said, they allow you to have fish tanks? He goes, well, they used to let us have the fish. He goes, but then people were, too many people were getting them, but they were using it to hide their knives under the sand. He goes, if you notice, I don't have any sand in mine. So I get to keep my fish tank. I don't even fish, but I get to keep it. He goes, it calms me down. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and the thing about Rory is he was about six foot two. He's probably about, oh, maybe 180 pounds. Not real muscular, but just very, you know, but he had that like Western Texas tribe drawl type thing. And um, we're walking. He goes, uh, just so you know, uh, my name's not Rory. I go by Rory. And I go by Rory because I look like Rory Calhoun. I went, oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> okay. And he goes, you knew who that is? I said, actually, I do. And I started telling him something about it. I knew. So anyway, he walks me all the way up to my cell. And he yells at the guard on the, the gun walk to yell at a guard in a post to pop my door so I can get in. And he says, uh, come on down and see me after chow. And I've got, I'll give you a few other things you got coming and stuff, but I just don't have time to go get them. Okay. So I come back down afterwards. <clears throat> so <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to him. And, and the thing is that this time in prison, you were only allowed to have ball caps. You can only have a ball cap, you know? Um, you could put a bandana on your head, you could have a ball cap, that type of thing. <clears throat> so he's got a Stetson, and I'm kind of like, how's he, how's he got a Stetson, right? It just seems like, so So one day I'm talking to this other guy on the yard that lives in the same building, I said, you know Rory? He goes, oh yeah. I said, he's wearing a Stetson. He goes, yep. And I go, well, how come he's got a, how do you get a Stetson in here? He goes, well, it's real simple, because it's a ball cap. And I go, it's a ball cap. He go, yeah. He said he went to the warden one day, caught the warden walking in the yard, Daniel Vasquez, and said, look, I want a ball cap. I mean, I go, I want a Stetson. He goes, and, and he said, well, you can only have ball caps. He goes, the Stetson is a ball cap. He goes, you proved to me that one baseball team wears Stetsons, and I'll let you have a Stetson. A couple months later, he catches him on the yard again, holds up a 
picture of the Houston Astro baseball team all wearing Stetsons. And it says, sponsored by Stetson. And they're all wearing white Stetsons. <laughs> Daniel Vasquez says, well, I'm a good to my word. You can have a Stetson. So he got his Stetson. <laughs> and he got a chrono from the warden saying he could wear his Stetson. Yeah. But he had this cat. <clears throat> and uh, Rory was doing a lot of time. And he had picked up a number of times in prison as well. So I never knew how, how much time, because the idea is you're technically, it's not, it's bad manners to go ask people how much time you're doing. <clears throat> but he was always really friendly, jovial, that type of thing. But he, and, I, and one day I heard him talk, discussing cats with people, right? Now, I, my job is I work in the, the medical clinic. I work in the clinic there. So um, he's talking about his cat's pregnant. And he's going to have kittens and he sells kittens. And he sells kittens for a box of cigarettes. You know, it's a 20 packs of cigarettes or whatever. You know. And so 200 cigarettes he gets for a kitten. And uh, the kittens are born. And I think, I don't know, they're a few weeks old. And he comes up to my cell and he says, hey, uh, could you do me a favor tomorrow? He goes, when you go to work. I said, yeah, I go stop by and see me before you go. I said, okay. So I come down there and he's got this, little wooden box a little uh, cardboard box and uh he goes uh take this in and take it to this certain nurse okay i'm not thinking anything about it. as i'm walking i'm hearing this meow 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 right i get him in i walk up to this nurse and i knew her and i, and I tell her yeah rory asked me oh yeah i've been waiting for this takes him over opens them up and there's all these little kittens in there right she breaks out needles her husband's a veterinarian. He gives her all the medicine. She injects all the cats. And then they go back to Rory. All right. Because she's a cat person and all this thing like that. So anyway, we, uh, we, I get him back to Rory and he's like, hey, that's really good. And he goes, here, here's for your troubles. And he hands me a couple packs of cigarettes. I told him, you know, I don't really smoke. I going to say a cat. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he goes, here's a couple packs of cigarettes. And I said, well, I don't really smoke it. He goes, just for, so I don't feel I owe you. Take them. Okay, so I got a couple pack of cigarettes. And it's cash in prison anyway. And so so we get about oh about two months goes by. And he had one little kitten that wasn't doing really well. It was like the runt and stuff like that. And uh he goes, Hey, w- would you like it? And he goes, I can't say it'll live, but you know, if it does, it would probably do all right with you. <clears throat> so I go, I'm thinking, I'm not really a cat person. I mean, I really haven't been around a lot of cats. So I get this little thing. And it's just, it's still at like two months. It just fits in the palm of my hands. So I bring it in and I've got powdered milk for it from the clinic. And I'm doing all this stuff for it. And I break off tuna and I feed a little bit of tuna here and there. And it starts to thrive. And I constantly warm it. I sleep with it. It's on my neck. I've got it under my thing. And it sit there and go, right? So... It does well. So <clears throat> I, I, I tell him about it. Yeah, you know, it's all doing really good and stuff. And uh, he had had like four cats over the years that he'd always kept one when he when his one cat was getting too old. He'd always keep one back to become a breed thing. And this was just his thing. And the cops were pretty good about as long as you didn't make a problem, you could keep your cat, right? Well, he gets a second litter of kittens, you know, and I've done this run about for him and everything like that. And, uh, 
this one guy wanted one of the cats from him. You know, my kitten at this point in time, it's like a year old or something like you know, And um, there were other guys on the tier had him. And it was really good because my cat would never go out through the bars. It'd go and sit at the bars and look out. But they, the cats would go out through the back piping into the where all the pipe drainage stuff was. And they'd hunt rats and mice out there. And one time my cat did come back and give me a present by putting a dead mouse on my chest, but figured I was giving it food. It was going to share, you know, it was really, really good. But, you know, and I would go every time I went to the <clears throat> chow hall and they had fish. I would always bring back fish for them. Oh. And I'm not very <coughs> inventive with cat names. <coughs> so in Gaelic, I called it cat because K-A-Y-T is cat in Gaelic. <coughs> so <coughs> cat. You know, that's basically it. So, <clears throat> anyway, so I had it. Well, this one guy wanted a cat from, and Rory tells the guy, I'm not going to sell you one. Something about you I don't like. Don't know what. I'm not going to sell you a cat. And the guy goes, yeah, you will. You better sell me a cat. And he goes, yeah, I'm not going to sell you a cat. Okay. So, we end up having to go out for our jobs and, and everything like that. And Rory happened to be off out for a medical appointment out of the prison. <clears throat> the cops came and took all of our cats. Cleaned out every cat in the, in our cell block area, right? Well, we come back and not all cats were in the cell when you came back from work. Some of them were out doing their thing. <clears throat> but you all knew they would come back within a certain time once you got back and they knew you were back because they knew bells and all that stuff. They'd hear them. They knew... Nobody's cats came, right? And um, you have guys yelling at the gunner, hey, where's my cat, right? And uh, all of a sudden, this sergeant comes up, and it's just about shift change. This sergeant comes up and says, I'd like to explain to you guys right now that we did not want to have to take the cats. But the inmate in cell 333 filed a grievance saying that it was unsanitary that you guys have cats and unhealthy and you know, and that by all rules, we're not allowed to let you guys have cats and stuff. So whatever you do, please do not stab my officers. If you have a question about it, talk to the prisoner in cell three, 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 you know, I'm sure he'll be willing to answer any questions. <clears throat> please do not stab my officers. We had no choice. It came up from, from above and walks off the tier. Bastard. You hear the bell change for the, the change of shift and you hear the cell, cell, cell three, three, three yelling across to the gunner. I need to see the Lieutenant. I need to see the Lieutenant, you know? And, um, yeah, they had to come get him with the, the big she plastic shields and the helmets and all stuff. And, um, yeah, he locked up that night for some funny ass reason. I'm not real <laughs> sure exactly what the reason was, but he, he, he chose lock. But as he was trying to get off the tears and he was off the third tier, People were willing to throw um, not only jars of piss on him as he went by, but they were actually throwing cans of food trying to hit him. And a couple of guys actually uh, threw firebombs over trying to burn him up as he went down the other tiers. Uh, people threw things out onto the uh, baby oil out on the steps of the stairwell, which caused mostly officers to slip, but uh, trying to get this guy, right? So anyway... The only cat that didn't get taken was Rory's. 
one of the officers grabbed it and took it to the clinic and gave it to the nurse. Right. <clears throat> when Rory came back, the first thing they did is they locked Rory up in his cell. Then the captain came to him and told him, your cat's okay. We've got it squared away. Just give us a few days and we'll give it back to you. But right now, we got inspectors coming the next day or so. Let us just handle it our way. And the nurse actually took it home with her so that it, they wouldn't find it anywhere and then brought it back in. Which, of course, as if you know, prison staff, they're not supposed to be taking contraband out for inmates or bringing it back in for inmates. But in this case, nobody thought it was contraband. What they thought was this was keeping Rory from killing people because they pretty much figured that Rory had nothing else in his life but this cat. And uh, when you've got that kind of a serial, you sometimes have to make, you know, the rules bend slightly, make it a little grayer area and stuff. But the guy who got sent out, for whatever reason, CDC always figured that if you have a problem in one prison, they just send you somewhere else and, and nobody will know about it. You know, it doesn't quite work that way. <clears throat> within, within days of the guy getting to the next prison, he was stabbed up numerous times, not serious stabbing, just stabbed. Uh, over a period of time, he'd been stabbed about 40 some odd times to where the cops like to joke with him about being a pincushion and stuff like that and stuff. And he kept thinking how it was so terrible that he was the victim because, you know, all he wanted was a cat and they wouldn't sell him one. Well, like I said, it was Rory's call. Rory chose he didn't want to sell this guy one, you know, and it just, that's kind of shit happens sometimes, you know, it goes bad, but you know, uh, Rory eventually got transferred, um, down to, uh, um, uh, Pleasant Valley. And then funny enough, his cat didn't go with him, but the nurse took the cat home for him and told him it'll be here when you come out because there had been a court case done and Rory was expecting to <clears throat> be released. Rory got his case granted. The prison was ordered 10 days to release him. On day eight, they found him dead in his cell from a heart attack. And they always believed that it was just the stress of him finally going home that was too much for him. Oh and, he, so and, he, and he passed away, yeah. Oh my yeah. Did um, what about your cat? Did it come back? No, my cat was taken, and I never got it back. You know, mine was one of the ones that they. <clears throat> the thing what we f we found out is that uh, they'd had uh, a guy come in that would collect them, and they were taken and to like a rescue center, so they weren't killed. I was going to ask. No, they weren't killed. They were, the cats were just taken to, because we were up there in San Francisco area. <clears throat> and it's a very, very, you know, modern, progressive, you know, we don't give up the illegal alien people. You know, they, they're not going to kill the cats, you know. <clears throat> but, you know, it was just one of those things. But, you know, that because of that, I, I had that thing where, though I'd never been a cat person before, you know, I'm not an anti-cat person now. You know, I mean... You know, this type of thing. I mean, I can I can deal with cats just as well as dogs. But, yeah, you know, it's just that was what finally woke me up to that cats were not not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Did you miss your cat? <clears throat> I missed my cat. 
Yeah, because like I said, it was one of those things where for some reason, just the idea that, like I said, it liked to lay across my neck and just the, <laughs> the purring and the warmth on my neck, you know, and the fact that it would, it would, it would crawl under my shirt. You know, it, there was that, that little thing there. Now, but in the same instance, <clears throat> that's not the only pets we had in prison. We had guys who had birds and stuff. And, and just to clarify, the, the bird man of Alcatraz never had birds at Alcatraz. He had birds at the other federal prison, but at Alcatraz itself, he never did. So, you know, that, that just, you know, Robert Stroud, that wasn't, that didn't actually happen. But then you know, that's near here or there. But <clears throat> the different prisons I'd been at, I, I knew a guy who had a bat at CMC. <laughs> a pet bat. Well, it, had, it hit the razor wire and it cut through the membranes and it couldn't fly. And he brought it to me and asked me, hey, can you, can you fix this? And I told him, I don't know. So we actually got a hold of some super glue. And we tried to super glue it back because I tried, figured if you tried to stitch it, it'd be, it would you know, change the aerodynamics. We tried super glue. It did work, but not enough to make it where it could fly. But the guy had a, a box in his cell, and he was single cell. He was up in the honor unit. And, and he has this box up there, and it's called, it says, the bat house. Do not open, right? So, of course, you know that everybody, everybody abides by that. One day he's at work. He worked in the laundry with me and they see officers came and they had a, a new female officer working the tier that had never worked there before. And she'd only been at the prison a few weeks and they go down and they give her his cell to search. Now the male cops know about the bat house and the male cops don't open the bat house because they know what the bat house is. She goes in there. She sees this thing, says the bat house do not open. She pops it open. And the bat comes flying out and lands right on her face and into her hair. And, and she goes crazy. She starts, you know, hitting her, herself and trying to get into it and everything like that. And eventually she actually ended up killing the, the bat while trying to get it out of her hair. <clears throat> she wrote the officers up for her, you know, for harassment and, and all that kind of stuff. Cause apparently she got the idea that they did this because they didn't really want to have a female officer on their tier and all this stuff. Funny enough, the guy filed, against her and uh because he pointed out that you know it had been a bat that was one of the species that was an endangered species and he was doing the best to try to keep it alive because it was that and nobody else had ever had a problem with it and on and on on and on and funny enough he actually won a little bit of a court case on that and she ended up having to pay him i think it was like a thousand dollars or something wasn't much but it was the idea that you know, you know, this type of thing like that. But getting back to San Quentin, we had one guy up there who had gotten a baby rat and had raised this rat. And the guy was a heroin addict to begin with. But he thought it'd be really cool to tattoo his rat. You know, what? To tattoo his rat. So what he did is he, got, he, he, he took a toilet roll pla- uh, paper, you know, cardboard roll, and he made it small. And he put marijuana joint in there and he'd, you know, get the rat high on marijuana, right? So he's doing this. In some way, he got the rat calmed down enough to shave the rat. And then over a period of time, he did tattoo it up, you know. You know, he had cool flames going down its sides and, you know, fuck CDC on its back and, and stuff like that. So, so the thing was, you know, yeah, it did. 
People always thought that this, this guy was a bit like Willard, you know. You know, he was he was kind of like the Rat Boy type thing. And give him give him credit, he kind of looked like a Rat Boy because he like, said he was one of those sucked up, you know, the heroin kind of gets sucked up thing. And um, I can't say for a fact. I mean, I knew the marijuana because I actually walked by one day when he was sitting there with the rat blowing marijuana, you know, in there. But there were guys that said that he actually was trying to get get it to use heroin as well so they could be like you know bond together because you know it's a thing like that but i don't know if he ever got to that point but he did use marijuana to keep it calm a lot of times though he was bitten a number of times i'm not and, surprised and he did share pruno with it you know it would drink the pruno Ouch. you know so so you know so the thing was but but i do know that he used to complain that when he didn't have any marijuana that it would get really agitated at him and nip at him because it was wanting to get high you Not know. because he was getting tattooed. <laughs> well, apparently, apparently, for whatever reason, he never really had problems with it biting him when he did tattoos, or at least we never heard he did. Because he was high. Yeah, but <laughs> he was a cool motherfucking rat. Yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know whatever happened to him. But when they took our cats, they didn't get his rat. Yeah, because his rat usually stayed out of the cell until he called it. It would actually come when he called it. So. Unbelievable. Right, so we're one hour, 20 minutes in. It seems like five minutes with Jamie's fast-paced stories about people. <laughs> Things that never end well for these people, though. The next one is an 80-year-old Philippe. Let's hope he survives this story, shall we? Oh, what happens to Philippe? Well, okay, well, well, Philippe, this, this was like, we're talking like 2003, 2004. Uh, no, excuse me. Let me get that correct. <clears throat> When yeah, it was two thousand three, two thousand four. Philippe were were um, there um, at at um, the um, Folsom with him, and um, Philippe's eighty years old, and um, he's a real nice guy. He has he, he's actually gotten to where <clears throat> the prisons have allowed him a little plot of land down in the lower yard where he's basically. Uh, a porter goes around, picks up papers and empties trash bins and stuff. But he's got a little garden area and he'd grow little jalapenos and onions and tomatoes and things. And just minds his own business. You don't know, no problem and stuff like that. Don't know him much about him. I know he'd at this point in time, he'd been in for about 20 years. So which means he had to come in when he's about 60. But other guys had told me that Back in the day, <clears throat> we're talking like the 40s, he had been somebody in one of the groups at the time, and uh, he'd earned his stripes and all that stuff. And basically, he got out, he went straight when he was like in his 40s, 50s, and he was allowed to basically retire out of his, his, his involvement and stuff. But something happened, he came back in, he'd been down about 20 years. And the thing was that there was the only people that I ever saw really talk to him were some of the old guards who remembered him from when they first started, when he was getting out or some of the older Hispanic guys that would talk to him. But in general, people just kind of ignored him. You know, they, he was just like, you know, nobody noticed him type thing. And, um, but if he always saw you, he'd always smile. He just smiled at everybody. So you figure he's a nice guy, guy that, <clears throat> every once in a while somebody would buy him an ice cream 
You know, and you'd see him go off to a corner and he'd eat his ice cream and stuff like that. Because he would give people peppers and onions and tomatoes because he grew way more than he could eat and stuff. And so people paid him in kind with canteen and stuff like this. But it was like not a, a friendly where you were sat down and just broke, you know, bread with him and stuff. So <clears throat> we ended up having this shift in population. If they're, and they ended up having uh, these young uh, Southerners coming in and, um, they, um, they didn't allow nor funny enough. They didn't Northerners could not get on the Folsom line and it's a Northern prison. You know, if a Northern showed up, they would immediately be locked up to be turned around, be shipped back out. Could you explain to Jen what Northerners and Southerners are in California? Is it like Um, in the UK? Yeah. Yeah. You got, um, you you got the, uh, Noista Familia, you know, which is the Northerners uh, and the Mexican Mafia, which is the Southerners, basically. And and the next with the with the Hispanic uh, gangs and stuff. Your Northern Mexicans, basically their families had been there longer. And a lot of time, the Northern Mexicans lined with black gangs. You know, that was their kind of thing. <clears throat> Most of them didn't really speak much in the way of Spanish, except what they call Spanglish, where they kind of blended all the stuff. The Southern Mexicans, their families were still a couple of generations from coming across the border and becoming legitimate and stuff. They spoke a lot more Spanish, but they also had their own versions of Spanish that was different than their parents' Spanish. <clears throat> then you had the Paisas, and the Paisas were basically, if you're a Mexican national or, or from Central America and things like that. Quite honestly, as far as I was always concerned, the Paisas were probably the more dangerous one because they lived in you know places where it was violent virtually all the time on the streets, you know, cartels and you know and, and all that. It's just uh, so when they came across when they got in prison, sometimes they became soldiers for the other groups and stuff like that, but when they were in them, their own right, they would be pretty much separated from it. Now within the northerners you had other splinter groups like Fresno you originally had the F14ers 14 for the letter N 13 for the you know for, for the M for the Mexican mob so it's this kind of thing but uh <clears throat> they ended up uh, the Fresno Bulldogs got tired of being used as a buffer uh somebody in the northern groups would do something against the southern groups southern groups wanted you know to get reparations for it and uh, they'd go into shot callers talk and they'd say, oh, go stab one of the Fresno boys. That's okay. And the Fresno boys got tired of being that buffer, you know, so they became bulldogs. And then they weren't really aligned with anybody and they fought with everybody. And then there was another group that had been, was Northerners and they were the San Jose Sharks. Funny enough, the bulldogs is a symbol of the Fresno State University, Fresno City College. They have the bulldogs. So, and in San Jose, they have the San Jose Sharks you know, uh, sports team. So the sharks being still aligned with the northerners would oftentimes have tattoos put on of a great white shark holding a bulldog in its mouth as a way of basically saying, this is what we think of you. Nah, nah, nah. And of course, you know that if you get those two guys together, there's got to be a dish- issue about it. So anyway, but Philippe, he just, he was just kind and concerned and all this stuff. So, it was right in the 2003, 2004 time. They brought this change of these guys in and they saw Philippe had this little garden. 
and they made demands. You're going to start bringing us this up. You're going to bring us that up, blah, blah, blah. And we're not paying you. You know, you're an old man. We'll fuck you off and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, Philippe also was in a hobby. And at the time he, he would do modeling clay stuff. And we weren't allowed to have kilns, but we could have air dry clay. And one of the things he was allowed to have was a wire to cut through the clay you know, with the two things, it's a typical tool. <clears throat> you know, you're allowed to have that. Um, he was also allowed to have <clears throat> an exacto knife with a little set <clears throat> that had small saws because he cut small wood like basswood. <clears throat> he would do that to build boxes for things or whatever he was doing. <clears throat> but he did these little things sold in the hobby shop. So one day <coughs> he goes to Chow, comes back, found out that the guards hadn't locked his cell fast enough. Somebody ran in there, ransacked, took a bunch of his stuff, right? Took his TV, took you know, his radio, took some canteen stuff. He comes back, he asks about, and most of the guys tell him, well, I didn't see anything, I didn't see anything, which of course is pretty common. But there were a couple of the black guys on the tier that, didn't really give a shit. And they said, yeah, you know, those guys down there took your shit, you know, and we don't care because they ain't going to come after us anyway, but we're just going to let you, we're just letting you know, because we respect you, Philippe. Okay. So a couple weeks later, Philippe's had a whole bunch of stuff grow. He's brought a bunch of stuff back. Cops let him bring it back. They'd go through the strip out search and stuff. And the cops would set it off to the side and give it to him when he came through. <clears throat> so Philippe goes up Goes to his cell. No. Guy comes, jumps on his door and tells him, when uh, when you get your next package, you got to pay us to allow you to stay on this tier. He goes, okay. Yeah. And that weekend, he was getting a package. His name had already come out on the list. That's how they knew he had a package coming. <clears throat> so he goes, he gets his package, brings it back, puts it in his cell. So the guys come by and uh, Philippe isn't going to go to chow because you usually eat out of your package the first night you get it. You get good stuff. And uh, he tells them, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to chow. And they say, well, when we come back, we're going to get our stuff. And he goes, yeah, when you come back, you can come have whatever you want. I'm good with that. You, you're more than welcome to anything you want. And they're like, yeah, we knew we, we'd get what we want. And so off trucks, and then it's like seven, eight of these guys. <clears throat> and they they all rush through chow and they come back and the cops would crack the 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 tier doors so all the doors are open they'd crack the tier doors and they would wait till everybody for that building is finished child and get in and then they would lock the doors and then they would relay unlock them later for yard or showers whatever so the guys come back they go down and he's i'm on a i'm, I'm on aa and you have aa and you have AB, and then you have BA, and then you have BB. And he's on the BB side. He's back at back bar, way down there at the end. <clears throat> he's like the second cell from the very, very end. So these guys all go down there. You start hearing screaming all the way through the building. You're hearing just scream after scream after scream. Guards run over there. One guy comes up, and he's still on fire. You know? 
And uh, one guard throws him to the ground, throws a blanket over him. Guards are running, guards are running, bells are going. Everybody get down, get down, down on your bellies, down on your bellies. <clears throat> Guys in the chow hall, everybody down on the floor. You know, doors are locked, everything. Sitting in the chow hall, you can watch him walking Felipe by. And he's in cuffs. And they're walking him over to medical. And Felipe's got blood all over him, right? They're walking to medical. And you see a gurney go by with the guy on it that had been burned. You see another gurney go by with a, with a guy laying there that you can see he's bleeding. You see another gurney go by, and this guy's bleeding. You see a third gurney go, a fourth gurney go by, and this guy's bleeding, but, you know, <clears throat> from his neck and stuff. And then you see him bring these other three guys by in cuffs, and they've got marks on them, but they're not that bad. And they take them right over to into the like the ad seg office. Well, at this point in time, we don't really have inmates working in the clinic at the moment. <clears throat> so we don't really know what's going on. But my job is I work in the watch office. I work for the captain. So I read all the, the DARs, the daily activity reports. I get to know everything that goes on. So they get us up. They tell everybody, go back to your cell. So I'm coming through. And there's a guy who works with me. He's, he's, he works for the lieutenant. We're told, go straight to your jobs. They need you there. <clears throat> we go over. We're sitting in our jobs. Captain walks in and said, did you see anything? said, just the guy's going by. We, we were in chow. says, well, get, get that typewriter warmed up. He goes, you're going to be typing. He goes, uh, he won't be home for breakfast. He goes, it's going to be a long night. Okay. <laughs> So we're, we're, we're sitting there. We get our stuff going. <clears throat> In comes the first report. Four guys are being sent out to the outside hospital due to their injuries. Stab wounds, strangled with a wire cutter, lit on fire with paint thinner, um, you know, and uh, there was like, claw marks on one of the guys across his neck and face and stuff. And uh, then it comes in, it says petition, potential assailant Felipe. And I'm not going to say his last name, but Felipe on there. And it lists the ages of the guys. 21, 23, 24, 25, 27, this type of thing. Felipe, 80, you know, Then the other lieutenant clerk, he's typing up the lockup order for the three other guys, you know, and he comes over, he goes, yeah, they're being locked up for uh, potentially trying to do, uh, you know, a robbery. And I said, uh, well, what, what's happening with Felipe? He says, well, they've got him out. They, they've sent him out to the hospital to, uh, to have him looked over. Okay. About four o'clock in the morning, I have to, I get notified to send out a, a recovery team to go and pick up an inmate from the hospital. Now, I don't know who's coming back. Felipe comes back. Turns out all the blood on him was not his. None of the blood on him. The only thing he had was he had scraped his foot when they, when the officers dragged him out because he wasn't wearing shoes. And when they took him off the concrete, he scraped the top of his toes. That was the only injury Felipe had. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> so 
they put him in ad seg while the investigation goes on. And um, the four guys go to the hospital. And uh, the guy who, who was on fire, was it was from his chest up. And uh, he actually, his ears kind of got melted a little bit. And, you know, his, his eyes weren't going to see quite as well again. And hair was missing and, you know, burns across his chest and stuff. <clears throat> and uh, one of the other guys had some burns too, but Felipe had used uh, inmate napalm on him, which is you boil a pot of water, you put baby oil in it, and you throw Kool-Aid in it. So when you throw it on, the water burns the baby oil cooks and the sugar gets in there and will cause infection. And it's very effective. You know, well, a few days later, Felipe gets released from ad seg. He goes back to his cell. Guys come over and give him stuff because they know he probably needs some few things. Somebody had already gone in and cleaned up his cell all the blood and all the stuff like that had been one of the, one of the friends of his cleaned it. We get the reports back. All seven of them were charged with attempted robbery. Felipe's story was they all rushed in and then they just started cutting each other. And one guy lit the other guy on fire. And then I was trying to make a pot of coffee. And one guy took my hot water, threw some oil, oil in it, threw some Kool-Aid in it, and threw it on another guy. I don't know what was going on. I just tried to get out of the way. And he said, but people were bleeding and blood got over me. I don't know what was happening. I was just doing my best to stay out of the way. I'm an old man. Right? So... None of those guys ever returned to the prison. They, they were all went to others, elsewhere. So, I don't know. I'm going through some other paperwork, and the captain walks in. says, uh, you like to read history? I go, yeah, I'm a history buff. He goes, here, read this. Drops me off. And it's Folsom State Prison, 1955, 56, six, something like that. And there, and there's, there's a Felipe, and there's a, a very young Felipe. And he stabbed one guy 12 times in the chest and threw him off the fourth tier for disrespecting his mother. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting bit there. And he goes, oh, no, read the next page. And uh, the next page, he chased two guys down the end of a fifth tier with two knives and made them jump from the fifth tier. Wow. One broke his hips and his legs and the other was killed. Yeah. Turned out that in the day, Felipe was the guy that dealt with collecting debts and dealing with disrespect. And uh, so I said, so what's going to happen with Felipe? He goes, Felipe's an old man. He was being robbed. Felipe just got out of the way. The robbers were were so greedy, they went after each other. And that's how they wrote the report up. (laughs) That these guys assaulted each other. And one of the things when they did that was that they couldn't be in the same prisons. So they all got sent to different prisons. Now, rumor mill had it that some of them were assaulted again because of the fact that they went after this old man who had been somebody and had been given the permission to retire out. And uh, yeah, so, you know, but Felipe... I later found out what Felipe was imprisoned for and what the thing was. 
is that uh, his wife had been a Jehovah Witness. He'd married a woman who was a Jehovah Witness. And she got really, really ill. And she wouldn't accept medical care. And they tried to force medical care on her. And Felipe basically held a gun on the doctors and would not let them give her any medical care. And she died. And so they basically gave him a second-degree murder. And that's what Felipe was in prison for. Oh, my God. Felipe yeah. was a badass. <clears throat> Felipe was a badass. What about Jim Passmore? Wasco. Jim Passmore. Jim Passmore. Slave Jim. Slave Jim had been a, had been a Satan slaves out of San Fernando. Slow down. A what? He had been a member of the Satan Slaves Motorcycle Club oh, out of San Fernando. And I first met Jim when I was probably 25 or something. Right after I started riding my club, I bumped into him in San Fernando at a bar and stuff. <clears throat> and uh, my patch, my club had only been around a very short, short period of time. And uh, he come over and looked at my patch. You know, and it's Confederate flag with the devil's head and stuff on it. He goes, "Well, it's pretty patch, you know, you know." And, and the idea is, you got, you know, there's supposed to be that thing about well, you don't let people disrespect your patch and things like that. But the way he said it, I didn't hear the disrespect. I heard just this kind of joking thing. So I offered to buy him a beer. And he goes, "A beer? You're only going to buy me a beer?" And I said, "Well, what would you like?" He goes, well, we'll we'll find out when I get through. And he sat down and he ordered a a beer and a shot of whiskey to make a Boilermaker. And he drank Boilermakers. And I think I paid for like seven or eight Boilermakers for him, right? <clears throat> and then he he gave me one of his courtesy cards. Slave Jim, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, the, the Hells Angels had, you know, ended up uh, absorbing the, the Satan slaves, right? So they were actually became Hells Angels. The problem is, is Slave Jim got kicked out of the Hells Angels because he didn't want to be absorbed. He didn't want to be, he wanted to be a slave. He was a slave. He's Slave Jim, you know, and the president was Slave Louis. I mean, everybody in the club was Slave so-and-so, right? So <clears throat> you don't really want to be called Slave Jim and you're Hells Angel. It doesn't work. So what happens? You just become Jim? And that was his attitude. You know, I'm Slave Jim. So... When he got his patch, the Hell's Angel patch, <clears throat> the story went that he uh, found a police car parked outside of a, of, of a restaurant type thing, like kind of in an alley, you know. And he climbed up on top of the hood and stomped down on top of the hood, jumped down or top on the roof and then jumped down on the hood, dropped his drawers and shit on their windshield <laughs> while they were sitting in it and then ran off. They never saw his face. They only saw the Hell's Angel patch. You know? So, of course, then they go after, they go and start harassing the Hell's Angels about, you just crushed one of our cars and shit on our car and ran off. You know, what the hell is this? Yeah. So, basically, Jim was this kind of guy. He, <clears throat> you've seen the, 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 the films, I'm sure, where somebody's grabbed somebody's head and put their face in a toilet. Yeah. Bulk washing. Jim, Jim did that many, many times. You know? Uh, Jim was known to to basically, you know, slam a guy's head into one of the urinal troughs and snap it off. You know, snap the troughs off. I mean, I saw him one time bring a, a toilet door uh, door out of a, a bathroom and beat a guy in a bar with it. 
because the guy didn't wash his hands. I mean, Jim was this guy, right? So <clears throat> I'd known Jim from this time and I'd seen him a few times there. That was my, so I haven't seen him for a while. So now I'm, I'm at, I'm at Wasco state prison. It's, you know, we're talking, you know, that it's now like 95. Yeah. And, um, uh, I've got a job where, uh, they, that when we hit the, the warden at the, at the name warden Carrillo, he had swore up and down, we will never have life prisoners here. Well, <clears throat> basically every prison gets life prisoners. And he'd actually turned away a couple of buses that wouldn't let him in the gate. That only lasted until the Fed, the, the uh, Sacramento found out. <clears throat> they sent people down there and said, they better come in here or you won't have a job. Now, <clears throat> he gets them in, but then he comes up this idea. He's going to put us on this one yard because... All of Wasco is a reception center except the mainline yard. Now, mainline yard has buildings there that one building is split in half. And it's part reception for when the guys come over from the reception side to go to mainline. And the other half, he's going to put the few lifers he's, he's re- said he'll take. And he also had the heat med guys. So <laughs> if you were a lifer, they gave you a category B restrictive movement <clears throat> so above the door it said cat it said it said killer bees and horrible heats <laughs> above the door of the of the building when we went in and uh i'm working as a clerk on the reception thing and i also work out of the gym well the gym is only supposed to be for people who are like uh 90 days to the house or minimum custody that aren't able to go out to the minimum because they're they got things in there like um, they got rabbit blood in them or something like that. And so they can't put them outside the fence because they run away. Yeah, so they put them in the gym over here. So I work in the gym and I'm a clerk in both places. And I, and I also handed out like GED packages, general education, high school diploma equivalency type thing. Well, Jim comes in and, he, and he, he's been transferred in from another prison. And he comes to check in with me. And he looks at me, he goes, hey, I know you. And I go, yeah. And he looks at my patch. He goes, yeah, you guy with the pretty tattoo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy with the pretty tattoo. How you doing, Jim? And we start talking. And he goes, <clears throat> you know, you know, I got, I got, I got a bad back, and, and my, my shoulders hurt a lot, and my my, my feet are, you know, really always hurting me. And I need a lower bunk, right? Because normally the first guys come in, they put them on an upper bunk. And uh, I said, no problem, Jim. So I give him a lower bunk, <clears throat> and I write it up that he he has all this thing. Now. I can't say he has these things, but I just say he does on this paperwork, right? So I give him this lower bunk and I actually tell him, where, where would you like it to be? He goes, where, where I can lay in my bed and watch the telly would be really nice. Okay. You know, but not too close to the shower because I don't want to see weenies. He tell me, right? And so, okay. So we get him to one place. So he's watching the telly. You know? So <clears throat> one day I get a bunch of new guys come in and, uh, you can see guys who've never really done any time and they, they, they just have this carry a way they carry themselves. And there were a couple like that and they get kind of put here and put there and they're on upper bunks. And, and uh, this one guy's name is John and um, I check him in and you know, it's like no big thing. And I give him the spiel. Here's your fish kit. If you have any questions, come see us, blah, blah, blah. We'll see what we can do. Uh, I don't live in this building, but I'm here, you know, basically seven days a week. I always come in, check in, do what paperwork needs to be done. Because we had a gunner in, in the gym, and he and the reason we had a gunner was some of these ninety day guys 
where guys are just kicked, got kicked out of level fours, 90 days to house. So you got level fours and level ones living in the same thing. You know, never a really good mix. But the gunner we had was well known to take his magazine, take his magazine out of his, out of his rifle, set it in the locker, put the gun down and lay down and go to sleep because we didn't really have things happen, even though they could. <clears throat> the other two officers we had uh, had this ongoing pinochle game thing where they were playing cards and, you know, and they had a couple of officers come in and play and they could care less. They just there for their eight and that's it. You know? So anyway, so John's been there and he's been there now about a couple of weeks. He's got a package came in and stuff. And Jim comes walking over. He goes, Hey, he goes, you know, mom, that new guy over there by my bunk. I go, yeah. And he goes, uh, yeah, you know, I don't really give a shit, but you know, he's having a little bit of problem. And he goes, you know, you're that bleeding heart guy that is willing to help people out. Yeah, personally, I don't really care, but I thought well, I'd bring it to your attention, you know, for no other reason, just because, you know, I know you and we get along. Okay. Okay, Jim. So I get up and I go walking over there and Jim goes back to his bed <clears throat> and, uh, so I walk over and I see John up on his bunk and he's telling, no, I'm not going to give you my package. I, I, it's, I've got my first stuff. I, you know, and these guys, there's three of them there. Go, You're going to give us the package. And he goes, no, I'm not going to give you my package. And he goes, we're going to beat you up. And they pull them off the bunk, you know, and they're, they're kind of like in the three person circle thing. I walk up and I go, is there a problem here? And the guy tells me, look, it's got nothing to do with you. He owes us. So what does he owe you for? He goes, doesn't matter. He owes us, you know, <laughs> one guy off to my right standing up there. Well, Jim's bunk is right there. And all of a sudden I see this guy get, get his jaw, this hands come under the guy's jaw and drag him over the top bunk, you know, and the other two just suddenly look at him. So I push the one guy down off the bunk and I'd look at the guy who's been doing all the talk. And I said, you know, you're not going to take this guy's shit. And he goes, I'll take it if I want, you know, and, and, he pulls out a toothbrush that's got a razor blade on him and he slashes and that's the scar across my hand well when he hits it the blade goes poing because he didn't melt it on right so now he's sitting there with just a plastic handle of a toothbrush <laughs> looking at me and so I, I i give him a two-handed push in the chest well as soon as i give him the two-handed push in the chest he goes sliding on his butt the guy that I pushed on the bed jumps up and he goes and grabs me around my, tries to grab me around the chest, but his hands can't lock around my chest. At this time, I've got about a 50 some odd inch chest plus my arms are at this time are about 18 inches, you know? So, he, so you're talking about, you know, you, you, you can't quite lock around there. All of a sudden I feel him let go. And I hear this thing like a bag of potatoes hitting the floor. And Jim had reached under the bunk, grabbed his legs, and pulled him. And so he face-planted, dead on the on the concrete floor, busted most of his grill, broke his nose, you know, and dr- built, he drags him over. And I said, Jim, I thought you weren't getting involved. He goes, they're blocking the TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and I go, what happened to the guy you pulled over the, the bed? He goes, uh, he's in that locker over there because they had camp style lockers and he put him in a locker and locked it. <laughs> didn't know what locker, whose locker it was. Didn't know, just the lock was unlocked, shoved the guy in there, locked it. So this guy's in, he's beating on the door to get out. The guy I shoved back, 
he's ran to go tell the sergeant that I'm trying to beat him up, you know? And the cops get over there and they call, they call me over cause I'm their clerk. And they go, oh, this guy says you're trying to beat him up. And I go, no, I said, I went over there to check on one of the newbies. And he goes, so what makes you think he wants to beat you up? He goes, cause he pulled a razor knife on me. And I go, really? And they're looking at my hand and they're looking at him. <clears throat> and the cop goes, I think if he pulled a razor knife on you, you weren't going to be over here talking to us. Yeah. And the guy goes, well, I want, I, I, I want out of this dorm. He says, no problem. There's a lovely cell for you in ad seg. And they walked him out. And of course, as he's walking out, guys are yelling, you fucking snitch, you rat. Well, you know, you can not come back to this yard, you know, stuff like that. And they go out. <laughs> the guy that got face planted, we've had to call medical, get him to take the medical. He's pretty cool. He tells him, I came out of the shower. I didn't realize somebody had dropped a bar of soap on the floor. I slipped on it. Face planted. You know? That's what he tells him. Okay, no problem. He comes back. He's got his face all bandaged up. The guy in the locker, the guy who owns the locker comes in. The cops haven't even come over. They hear all the racket. They don't, they're not even going to come look. Guy comes over, undoes the combination. The guy comes and goes, what are you doing in my locker? <laughs> well, uh, I got put in this locker. What are you doing in my locker? And it turns out to be a great, great, great big black guy. And then he goes, where's my Snickers? Do you eat my Snickers? Did you break into my locker and get my Snickers? <laughs> the guy goes, I didn't touch these Snickers. Well, there ain't no Snickers on that thing. There were 10 Snickers on that shelf, and there are no Snickers now. And he goes, you better go get me some Snickers. And if I don't have Snickers in a half an hour, you're going to be my bitch. You know? <laughs> and, and the guy's running around people. Hey, anybody got Snickers? I can get Snickers. I got to get Snickers. And, and, and I go back to my, my desk, and Jim comes over and goes, I think you owe me a cup of coffee. Yeah, no problem. I make him a cup of coffee. I said, uh, so what the hell was on TV? He goes, my soaps. You know I like watching my soaps. Motherfuckers block my soaps. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. So anyway, Jim's like down to about a month before he's supposed to get out. And uh, he gets called to the chapel. And when you get called to the chapel, you usually know what that means, right? Something, someone's died. Someone's died. Okay. <clears throat> so... He comes back and uh, he tells me, come over to my bunk. I come over to the bunk. He breaks out and we make burritos. And he's, we're talking like nobody, talking about bikes, talking about runs. He's telling me when he gets out, he's going to you know, be out there doing all this, that, and the other thing. Hasn't mentioned anything about going to the chapel. Right? So the guy goes, hey, Jim, who died? And you're like, fuck, you know, he, and Jim goes, nobody of importance. And goes, oh. So doesn't it have to be family? He goes, well, he isn't. He wasn't family anymore. And so it's like, what do you mean he wasn't family anymore? He goes, well, it was my fucking rat ass son who fucking turned federal and you know witness against some of the guys that he was running around with down there in Miami, you know doing the drug stuff because my, my son thought he was going to be part of Miami vice type shit. And he was going to, he wanted to be, he wanted to be a cop, didn't have what it took to be a cop, wanted to be a gangster, didn't have what it took to be a gangster, but he had everything it took to be a rat. Says they killed him. And you go, and you're not upset. 
goes, he was a rat. He goes, but he was your son. He goes, a rat. He says, quite honestly, I told him five years ago, don't you ever fucking come around me because he came and told me, dad, I'm going to do this because they're going to pay me. And he said, for some reason, he thought I was going to respect him. He says, I'd far rather respected him if he'd got, if he'd been the guy who went to prison for being a great drug dealer or being a great gangster or being anything but a rat. Yeah. So the guy leaves. We're sitting eating burritos. He looks at me. He goes, yeah. He goes, you can't really make your children be what you want. He goes, I gave that kid Harley's. He goes, I took him to all the runs. He goes, I got him all kinds of, he goes, I took him to a whorehouse when he was 13 years old. He goes, and he turns out to be a rat. He goes, the worst thing about it, he still carried the Passmore name. And he goes, and I told, I told the chaplain, he won't be buried under the Passmore name. He goes, as far as I'm concerned, he can be buried in a nameless grave. And then Jim was just that way. Yeah. And the thing about Jim, 1970, uh, Jim had gotten into a minor incident and got shot four times in the chest, survived that. And three people that were suspected of being a part of it, though Jim never told the cops. They kept asking him who did it, who did it. He goes, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. These guys uh, suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth. And uh, they came after Jim and said, we think you did something to these guys. He goes, what guys? Because I don't even know who those guys are. I've never heard their names before. You're the only people that talk about them. How do I know you guys didn't do this and try to put it on me? Why would I do it? And they said, well, we found in one of the guy's houses the gun that was used to shoot you with. He goes, well, I never saw their faces, so I wouldn't know that, would I? And they're going, well, somebody would have known. He goes, well, well, how's that make my problem? And they tried and tried and tried to figure out how to link him to it. And other than the fact he could get shot four times in the chest with a 38 and, and walk away from that. But that's how Jim Passmore was. He was this, this, this mountain of a man and stuff. <clears throat> the worst part about with poor Jim Passmore is when he did eventually pass away a few years later because he, he was up in his age. But uh, he passed away just exactly how he thought he would like to do, which was at a whorehouse in Nevada, you know, you know. So drunk. many men have said that. Huh? They want to die that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, what he actually used to say is he always wanted to die when he was 104 shot by a jealous husband. You know, but, you know, you know but, you know, the thing was that, but he died in a whorehouse and, you know, he, he'd gone there on basically about a seven day binge, you know, and, uh, you know, but, you know, Jim had a great turnout at his funeral. A couple hundred bikers I knew went to it. I didn't get to go to it, but he went to it. And it was a pretty good deal all in all. Wow, what an amazing um, story. Go, Jim. Ostriches and chicken farm at Avenal. I don't even know where this one's <laughs> going to go. Okay, so <clears throat> at Avenal, they had a pig farm, and they originally had an ostrich farm. And we also had a chicken farm where they raised chickens from eggs all the way up to killing them and packaging them and selling the chicken went through not only the prisons, but it got sent to schools, you know, stuff like that through the state programs. Now, the interesting thing about this is you had to get a gate pass to go 
out to work because of those facilities are just outside the fence line. Now you couldn't get one of those. If you had outstanding driving offenses, you're going to get a gate pass. If you had any kind of, uh, like say rabbit blood in you, uh, if you were doing over a certain amount of time, you couldn't get it. Or if you were illegally in the country, you couldn't do it yet. Funny enough, 90% 90% of the guys who went out behind the gate were always his young Hispanic kids who were all illegally in the country, but who had worked on farms in Mexico. And so they had skills they needed skills. So they got special dispensation for this, but you had the odd white guy, you know, that got to go out too. Now <clears throat> they could hatch a chicken egg and within eight weeks, that's a full grown chicken ready to be cut up and served. Now, if you raise a chicken, It takes a lot longer than eight weeks for that chicken to become full grown. But because they inject it with hormones and all kinds of other things, they make these chickens grow faster and all this stuff like that. Okay. So guys working on the weight pile are always looking to get big, you know, and you can't get steroids and you can't get this and can't get. So you had these guys and there were a number of them that I knew um, that thought if the chickens get like that, I can get like that. And they had this one particular guy who was already had done. And they call his nickname was Royd because he had done roids on the streets and he came in really big, but he was worried about losing his size. And he was looking at this, the chicken thing about the, the eight weeks and they're like the big chicken, you know, and stuff like that. And so they had the air guns that do the injections. And so, And he did this to multiple parts of his body. Funny enough, there's something in the chemical there that causes these really big abscesses, you know, and, and, and it's like chunks, like slugs about the size of a 50 P has to be taken out when they, cause it hardens up and kind of all, uh, gets like necrosis in there and stuff. Right. Now you would think that, people hearing about this would go, Oh, that I'll never do that. Right. Well, <clears throat> we had this one young guy named Thor. His name is Thor Peterson, right? He's dead. So it doesn't matter, but he was oh, a young guy. Superhero, Thor, huh? Like T H O R. Yeah. Thor. Yeah, Cause the white guys, he was a white guy. Look up to the, uh, Hitler, neo-Nazi. Um, but his, he was named that by his parents. Oh, cause, okay. Cause his parents were, were Scandinavian, da da da, and so they named him Thor. Yeah, and his dad. I didn't know it, they could legally do that. What name you after a god? You're not allowed to be named after Hulk. I know that or Superman. No, I think you can be Hulk, but wait, you wait, can't wait. be Superman. Do you know how many Hispanic guys are named after Jesus? Jose. Hey, no, Jesus. Jesus. But that's Jesus. Jesus. Have you ever seen how it's Jesus? Mm. Yeah. So yeah, you can be named Jesus, and if you were German, you could be a Christ. Because, you know, it's freedom of so, speech, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But I mean, you know, that type of thing. I mean, there, there are things, but no, but anyway, he was named Thor, you know, and, and, uh, but for some reason, do not ask me why. I have no idea how. But <laughs> we get the report back on the yard that he'd gone out there <clears throat> and decided to inject himself, you know, in his man meat because he wanted to. <gasps> He wanted he wanted this this muscle. Well, like I said, you get an abscess about the size of a fifty p. You know, 
six months after he'd done that and they'd done all the surgery, they kept, everybody kept joking and calling him peewee, you know, because he had to lose about half of it you know, because of the, where it was, in, how it was injected and, 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 and it nar- like say narcosis and stuff. So, <clears throat> but the, the, the thing about the Mexican guys working out there is you, you get the guys in the abattoir and the way the abattoir worked is they cut the chicken up and then they throw it down a flash freezer. It's, it's a big tunnel and you just throw it up there. And by the time it gets down at the bottom, it's frozen. It's flash freezer. And on more than a number of occasions, there'd be an incident go on where staff would get up there and have to try to save somebody. They were trying to stuff down the frozen, the, the flash freezer because Mexicans get really into that trying to get the guy down there he's he's hanging on for dear life you know because <laughs> he knows if he goes down the thing he ain't coming back out but so they they have that they have all this kind of thing but then you had the guys that thought i'm not going to do the injections because that's that's not good but the grain they have is you know is, is filled with the hormones and stuff to help out too so guys would get it and they would grind it down and they'd make a porridge and then they would eat it. And virtually everyone that I know of that did that had to be sent out to the hospital and be opened up to remove these huge blocks that were in their intestines that would just solid up like concrete. You know? So again, something meant for a chicken is not necessarily meant for a human. And uh, what was behind the abattoir is where the, the Avenal uh, Correctional Guards uh, dogs were kept. And they had this set of six beautiful Belgium shepherd type dogs and they had them out there. Now, when they do the abattoir, they have use all kinds of chemicals and stuff. You know, you just, they do it and it blows out through a vent and then blew out through a vent onto the dog pound area. And within a year, all the dogs had cancerous tumors growing on there, and they lost all their dogs. Plus the fact is they come to find out their dogs being out there lost their total sense of smell. So when they brought them around to smell for cell phones and, and drugs, <laughs> these dogs, they couldn't smell anything. You know, they went by, I mean, you could set, you know, a thousand pounds out and, you know, a pound of cocaine and the dog would look at it and keep moving because he doesn't know what it he can't smell anything. Right. So they, and they, 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 was a big deal about big scandal guards got actually got <clears throat> lost their, you know, jobs as far as guards and got made staff members. I mean, it was pretty, pretty heinous on that, but besides the chickens we had the, and the, we had the pig farm and the pig farm was pretty much, you only had a few minor incidents where guys went out there because they had, tu- they had boars. And you had a few guys that tried to figure out how they could get a boar tusk because they wanted to wear it around their neck because that's like really cool and stuff. And they, they found that that if you put your hand in a boar's mouth to try to hold it so you can grab the tusk, you might not come back with everything that you put in his mouth. Really? Yeah. Got really sharp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, people are thinking, oh, it's a pig and it's con. Yeah. Not the same thing. You know, it doesn't work that way. So they had a few instances like that, but what they, when they got to the thing, but they came out with this idea that there was a big fad about ostrich meat. It's healthier. It's better than beef and all this stuff. It's, it's the other red meat type thing and all that. So they, they got some ostriches and they brought them in. They got guys hired to do it and they bring an ostrich wrangler in, which I never had heard of before that, but it's a guy who works with ostriches real. And the guy was from Australia and he knew all about ostriches and all this kind of stuff. 
And he tells them, you know, that to get an ostrich to do what you want, they're inquisitive. So what the idea is you open the door up and when they lean their head in, you put the black sock over their head and now you can walk them anywhere they want because they can't see and so they're going to rely on you to get them there. They're simple enough. Okay, that, that works well. And um, if you guys did smuggle back some ostrich feathers because they were going to thought it'd be really cool to make pins out of them and stuff, you know, like quill pins. Like. <laughs> and then we had this one guy. Yeah, we had this one guy named Charlie. And Charlie was a rather big, buffed-up motherfucker. And he thought, they're just big chickens. Right? So he went out into the... They would bring an ostrich into this little room. It's probably four feet by maybe eight feet. And they'd let it in. And then the idea is the door's at the other end. So you get it to come all the way over and then you get, you trick it. Well, he walks into it when they let the ostrich in, he's standing there and he punches it with all he's got. He punches this big bird. The big bird raises up one leg and pile drives him across the thing into the wall, leaving these puncture wounds in his chest and fracturing his sternum and breaking a few ribs. And then the chicken went over there and started stomping on, you know, the big ostrich started stomping all over him. And it took everything the Wrangler could do to get him out of there before it killed him and told him, you never, you never hit an ostrich. It says, first off, all they know is retaliation after that. It says, that ostrich, we're going to have to kill it in there and drag its body out because we aren't going to be able to trick it now because you messed that up you know and stuff so anyway but after that instant they decided well ostriches are too big so we're gonna get emus because you know emus are almost like an ostrich a little smaller and they're basically you know easier to deal with have you ever seen an emu uh, stampede yeah (laughs) they get them into a corral and they're trying to get them to come over here to go through this 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 draw you know the a troth pin type thing to squeeze them in to get them to where they want them to go. And they're not buying it. They're all hanging out over here. They pick this small little Mexican guy says, Hey, go in there, scare them, make them come around. So he goes in there and he's going, Hey, psh, Hey, psh, Hey, psh. And they're ignoring him. Right? So one of the guards says, Hey, throw some rocks at him. He threw about a half a dozen good-sized rocks at him, and they all turned. And they all looked at him, and then they all ran towards him. And he was running for his life trying to get into that little trough thing because they could only come one at a time through there. He got within about five feet of it before they ran right over the fuck on him. Ran down one after another going down that trough. But they like every one of them seemed to hit this poor kid. <clears throat> Sad part is that after that, he got to be a part of the pick-apart yard because they, they punctured his, his spine and, uh, and, oh. and broke his legs and stuff, and he ended up being paralyzed from the waist down. And, and you would think he'd be compensated for that, but instead he was written up for abuse of the, you know, abuse of the animals for throwing the rocks at him, even though the staff member told him, throw rocks at him. You know? So he got a write-up, got more time. Got a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> this is just blowing my mind. So he's gone from an emu stampede victim 
It's a wheelchair, prison gang wheelchair walls. <laughs> yeah, so you know. <laughs> oh, what a lucky fella. Yeah. Oh my god. I've never anything like this stage in my life. Wood Brothers. Oh, that happened at what? Is that like wood as in whites? Wood, well, wood brothers. Well, you have to find, you'll have to find out, won't you? Can you explain to Jen what a wood is? Okay. There's, uh, in, in the white culture, prison gang stuff, you have what's called pecker woods. And okay. pecker woods are, it's like a thing to be noted as if you're true white. You're, you're down for the white cause and all that. But if you actually look at the historical relevance of it, Peckerwood was a derogatory term used by wealthy people for the poor whites. And the thing was, what they would do is they were, the whites were the only one allowed to approach the houses to bring firewood. A lot of times in the South, the firewood they would bring had been pecked by woodpeckers. It burns hot and fast. It's trash wood, basically. So for them to call white peckerwood, they were referring to them as weak, poor, white trash. Kind of like the wood. Okay. Now, but again, whites have taken it as a sense of pride and, you know, it's be called. It's kind of like the idea that with blacks, you can use, you and if you're, if you're black, you can call each other the N-word and it's okay. But if you call, if anybody of another race calls them, oh, now you're being derogatory. So it's, it's this kind of, you know, two-sided thing. <clears throat> so anyway... There at Wasco, um, we had these these guys drive up. One guy's name is Ledgerwood. One guy's name is Leatherwood. And one guy's name is Peckerwood. And they're all three black. What? They're all three black. Peckerwood came out of Georgia. The other ones came out of Alabama. The cops on the yard thought it was really funny to go, can we get a Peckerwood at the office? Can we get a Peckerwood at the office? You know, can we get the Wood Brothers here? We need some woods over here. We need Wood Brothers over here. Because they, when they say Wood and Brothers, they were referring to the blacks. You know, And every time they'd say that, you'd see the whites you know, kind of like tighten up. You know? And the one guy, Peckerwood, was, well, all three of them were good size, but they were very typical blacks where they were very muscular up top sight, but not so legs. But the one guy, Peckerwood, every time he'd see a guy, white guy, he goes, Hey, thank you. I appreciate. I love the fact you put my name on you. And then, of course, the white guy go, Yeah. And so he's got the, so a number of them went and complained to this guy, Sergeant Broach. And Sergeant Broach was really cool because Sergeant Broach could speak German. So the white guy's like, yeah, Broach, man, he's a down, down white boy. And then one day they saw Broach and he's wearing a yarmulke because he's Jewish German. <coughs> and that, that kind of like, well, we thought you were one of us. He goes, one of you? I'm a cop. What, what makes you think I'm one of you? <coughs> yeah. But Broach was funny because he would start talking German to him and all that stuff. And they, he'd catch them out all the time like that. But um, anyway, the the guy Peckerwood, he was only in on multiple traffic violations. He didn't have a license. 
he never paid taxes on his car. He's never, he never, he just bought a car and drove it, didn't have insurance. And he wound up with like something like twenty five, thirty thousand, you know, dollars in violations. So they threw his happy ass in prison for a year. You know, and uh, he got in there and the, the other guys, the other two were bonafide gangsters. They were, they were drug dealers. And, uh, you know, they didn't, you know, they were thing, but yeah, it was just one of those things, but you know, uh, it was just the idea that these guys would bring such joy to so many people in the yard, because like I said, every time they'd get called on the thing there, but <clears throat> I can give you that, but CDC has this funny way of, of, of playing that when they know they got that because at the same prison, we had, uh, these guys that were bunked up, right? And one guy was uh, named Blue Ball, and the other guy was named Red Dick, right? And they would they would have they call the building and tell the officer, "We need Blue Ball and Red Dick." And of course, not everybody's accent plays right, so I need Blue Balls and Red Dick at my desk. I need Blue <laughs> Balls and Red Dick at my desk, right? And stuff like that. But the funnier one was at Avenal, and we had an Indian named Harry Dick. That was his actual name. <laughs> swear to God, actual name. And every time they had a female officer work in his wing, and when they were visiting, they, the, the sergeant in the office would go, yeah, call her and tell her. I need Harry Dick. I need a Harry Dick up at my desk. You're going to visit. Can I get a Harry Dick for a visit? And about three or four times, the female officers would go, I've been played. And then Harry Dick would walk up, get his pass, go to his visit. You know, he thought, he thought, you know, but like I said, CDC's always been where, where they don't have a problem clowning people on their thing. Funny enough, they don't like being clowned back, you know, you know, and, uh, you know, but, you know, that's so, you know, we had a guy named McDougal, you know, and you know what Mac means? It means son of. Sorry? Son of Mac okay. means son of, you know, if it's, in, if it's Ui, it means wife of, if it's Nia, it means daughter of, okay. It's Gaelic, right? And Dougal, well, if you break it down, Duv is black, Gal meant foreigner. So his name meant son of a black foreigner, right? And he was, he was a guy that was at CMC with us. Oh, I'm not sorry, DVI with us. And he was a real dick of a cop. If you walked down the hallway and he thought you had too much lunch in your bag, he'd just rip it out of your hand. Wouldn't even ask you. Just rip it out and and, and cause a scene. And one day, you know, he did that to one of the guys I knew, um, a black guy. And uh, he didn't like the guy because he used to think he was up deep. Problem was he was just educated. He spoke well. He was educated, all this stuff. Yes, he did it in prison, but he still was all that. And, um, Anyway, so I made the comment to him after he got back to work with me. I told him, yeah, you know, I said, just so you know, you have to forgive him because he, he's just feeling a little bent right now because you're not acknowledging him. He goes, what do you mean I'm not acknowledging him? So I'm telling the inmate, right? And, and I go, yeah, well, you know, his name means he's the son of a black foreigner. <clears throat> he goes, what? And I said, yeah. And I showed him, wrote it out in Gaelic to him. And uh, he goes, so what you're telling me is that he has black ancestors. I said, well, that's not necessarily true. I said, because in in the old times, black could mean color, the guy's hair, because you were called by 
your hair or a mark you had. Or something. He could, black could also mean he has a really messed up attitude, but he was foreign, which meant he wasn't from Scotland, which is where this guy's ancestry was. So he could have been from the Iberian Peninsula, had black hair and had a bad attitude. He'd be known as black foreigner, that type of thing. He goes, no, no, I like the fact that he, you know, that he's got black in him. So, so he, he walked up to him and he goes, Hey bro. And he slapped the cop's hand. Right, what the hell? He goes, man, it's okay. It's okay. I understand. You know, you're passing. It's all right, man. He goes, I'll keep it down low for you. What the hell do you mean? He goes, oh, come on. I know that you're the son of a black foreigner, man. And, and where, how much blacker? He goes, what, a Somalian? Nigerian. No, 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 no. He goes, I'm Scottish. He goes, yeah, but your name says something else. And, and McDougal didn't know that. So he actually went and found out. He come back and he's like mad. God, he's mad. He's like, well, nobody better say I'm black again. And suddenly you had guys walking by with little signs going, McDougal's black. <laughs> little shit like that, you know? <laughs> and it was just, it was an ongoing thing, right? <laughs> and, uh, but the funny thing is with McDougal, I had very little problems with him. The only time I ever had a problem was I went on a visit one time. And a matter of fact, that photo uh, is the problem he had because he didn't like my shirt sleeves. Um, he, he, he goes, that looks like an altered shirt. I said, no, sir. I said, it was issued to me in the, the prison laundry. And uh, so when I went to, uh, he took me over the prison laundry and they got me another shirt and they gave it to me and it fit me just the same way. <laughs> How big were your guns at that age? Oh, at this point in time, they were only about 17, maybe Still 17 and a half. 60. Mm. So, yeah. sorry, yeah. Uh, you speak fluent Gaelic. No, I don't speak fluent Gaelic. You I write. speak Gaelic, but only what, okay, I have what they refer to as hesitant conversational. It means that I can speak. I speak some Manx Gaelic, which a lot of people have argued about that there is no Manx Gaelic. It is Manx Gaelic. It is based on the Irish Gaelic, um, Irish Middle Gaelic, actually. <clears throat> but I can I can do conversational. Konostatu Makara means how are you, my friend? Yeah, and your your thing would be te uh, Goma means I am fine, and my response would be Agastatu, and I am too. You know, uh, you know, I own a doe, a tree, a quar. Kehar, say, a shek, an ak, a a day. But I can do Spanish. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, diez. You know? Um, on the way. Yeah. You know, know, so, you know, bon is white, duve is black, don is brown, you know, rue is red, you know. So the thing is that I could write Gaelic. I I had Gaelic material, funny enough. It was actually sent to me by the Irish embassy, some other stuff. But, when I was a little kid, Martha, who was Irish, matter of fact, from the Isle of Man, she had been part of the Irish, the Boswell Irish gypsies who used to be up on Douglas Point. And they, from the 1850s, they had horse fairs and all this stuff. And she was the one that taught me. But what she did, it she taught me so we could talk what she referred to as mommy speak. So we spoke stuff. So I only knew up until... I was probably 18, 19 when I started actually looking into more of my cultural stuff. I only knew enough, knew Gaelic to 
carry on a conversation if I was talking to my mom. You know, where are we going? You know, what are we doing? You know, is are we do you know? Am I you know hungry? I'm you know cold. Things along that. So it wasn't fluent in that respect, but the fact was I could speak it. But the thing was I could speak more Gaelic than other guys in prison. And that's kind of where people got the misconception of this. That, but I did use it to my own advantage time just to confuse people. You know, I'm sorry. I just, well, but you know, but it's like the thing when somebody would come up to me and I could see they've got an issue. They come up to me and they'd say something to me and I go, you want me to do what to you? How many times? And now they're like, because now they're not sure what the hell they asked me. You know, <laughs> what, 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 what? Because I, I would do things like that. Sorry about your luck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I did things like this, you know, but the thing was that, but I've gone through and like said, I, um, I didn't, she taught me Irish, Irish Gaelic because that's what she was. When I learned later there was Manx Gaelic, I started contacting Culture Vannin on the Isle of Man. They sent me stuff. And so I started learning. And so now my focus is to basically become functionally literate in Manx Gaelic. Now I can write Gaelic much better than I could speak it, you know? And, uh, but the thing was that it's just that I could, you know, like I said, it's like, like we were talking about, like people putting runes on. There became a big thing in prison where a lot of whites, particularly ones that were leaning Norse type stuff, they would take and write runes out. Well, runes were a secret, religious, magical thing. They weren't meant to sit down and write, okay, you've got to go kill this guy right here and get his dope from him. That's not what, that's not what they were meant for. That is little stones, yeah. And, and then the funny part is, is that people don't realize there's not just one type of runes. You know, there's lots of different, I, you know, I've got like 12 different versions of the runes, depending on whether it's, you know, the old runes, the new runes, you, younger, elder Futhark, uh, Germanic, you know, you know, most of the Eastern European, most of the Europeans where any Nordic people had been in, had their own types, all that. But the Celts never had runes. They had what's called Ogham. And that's a different type of writing. But but that's what I'm saying. People, most people learn this much of a, of something and then they like, now they're, they're still thing. Me, I actually did a lot of studying. I, I you know, uh, about the Celts and Norse and all that stuff. And I actually have enough material. I could actually write a book or put a book together because I used to teach people in prison. Uh, when people did ask about certain things, I would teach them about different cultural and religious type things. So anyway, but that's... So did you have pagan religious services? Yes, I, I, ran, I ran those. Uh, you ran had ground Had grounds at different prisons and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, but... you know, and, and the thing was, it was more the idea that for me... It was my cultural identity, and, and and that's why I try explaining to people, you know, that um, there's people who want to borrow from this religion and or this culture and that culture and that culture and that culture, and then say it's all theirs. It doesn't work quite work that way, but people do this. It's like tattoos, you know. I remember when when people come up and go, "I want tribal tattooing," and you suddenly see these just marks. Well, that's not necessarily tribal tattooing. You know, I mean, there are tribes who had tattoos, but they weren't. Now, like with mine, you know, I've got my, my Isle of Man three legs here. Well, these are just my version of an eight more ancient three legs. Yeah, but this is mine. 
in that respect. You know, so, yeah, I mean, so that's, you know, but that's neither here nor there. So, <laughs> sorry to get off the list. That's all right. Um, we'll go on to the story. Christian Brando and... Christian Brando and, and Charles, Charles Keating. Keating. Yeah. Keating. So this is Marlon Brando's son. Marlon Brando's son. And Keating was part of the savings and loans Link, the Lincoln fraud savings in loans Arizona, fraud. wasn't he? Well, no, he he was actually in, in, in Arizona and in California. He had a few... Because he was doing what they used to call the 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 penny bonds or something like that, where he would get poor people to invest money and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'll go with Charles Keating first. That we talked about that. And he had the Lincoln five, which had like John, you know, had John Glenn and uh, these other senators and all that stuff involved in, but he, he, uh, he ended up doing four years in prison before his conviction was basically overturned and stuff. And the four years in prison he did, it was at CMC, you know, and, when he first thing he did when he got to CMC, they took his wig, his, his, his you know, his, he had he had a a, a rug, rug <laughs> toupee, toupee. Anyway, they took it from him because you're not allowed. People are not familiar. What does CMC stand for? Oh, California Men's Colony, oftentimes called the home, the the home of the stars because basically very famous people went there. Ike Turner was there when I was there. You know, uh, we had like say Christian Brando. You know, you 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 had a. Uh, um, I won't try to remember the name of the drum, the drummer, but there was a drummer from a, a, one of the famous bands. He was there. Yeah, I mean, but you, uh, Hollywood Henderson, who was a, a football player and and was in for rape, got out and then wins twenty six million dollars in a lottery. Yeah, I mean, you know, but <clears throat> we had we had a lot of there was a lot of stars came through there, um, and the well known uh, criminals. But anyway, Charles Keating came there, and of course they took his toupee, which you know, like you. That's the part of his image, you know, unlike some of us who don't really worry about that. Um, but he, uh, he realized quickly that very few Hispanics ever invested in stocks and bonds and things like that because they don't have that kind of thought process in, you know, they're, they're more family oriented, things like that. But the whites and the blacks were always trying to get get up a little bit, trying to make a little bit for some. So he realized very quickly that some of the people at the prison had family who had lost money through his stuff and they were whites and blacks. So he paid the Southern Mexicans to protect him. And anytime he went anywhere, he had about a dozen of them walking, some in front, some on the side, some behind him, all this stuff. And I knew the, I knew the guy who was the shot caller at the time for the Southern Mexicans there. And I talked to him one time about it. And he says, oh, yeah. He goes, you know, he kicks us down so much money a month. We get quarterly packages. He has girls come up and see us and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's it's all worked out for everybody, you know. And we don't let anybody hurt him. He takes care of us. He's even offered us a few jobs, a few of us jobs when we get out through friends of his for doing this, protecting him. Is that a racial violation, though, for a white guy to pay the Mexicans to protect him? It would be, except at CMC. CMC okay. was basically supposed to be a neutral ground. It got a, it, it was funny. Everybody would tell you in prison, you know, if you can get CMC, it's great because you have all you have more more prison industries there. You had nine, so there's a lot of money to be made. You had more vocations there. You know, you had like more than a dozen there. You had the, all the college stuff. You could get college degrees from Cuesta City College. From Chapman University and from Cal Cal State, uh, San Luis Obispo. So you had all this kind of you know stuff, 
So the politics was more relaxed. Yeah. And, and well, the thing was because here's the thing. No active gang member could go down there. Mm. You had to debrief if you wanted to go down. So that was one reason why they get people who were been victimized other places. Sometimes, you know, a lot of them got to go down there. But high prof, some high profile, the child chill kidnapper guys were down there. You know, there, you know, there were, you know, um, um, guy who killed Pauly class. Um, trying to think of his name right now. Um, oh. Richard Allen Davis. He was there and I knew him before he got out and killed Pauly class. And funny enough, as soon as he, as soon as, as soon as the, the drawing came up of the suspect, there must've been a dozen guys at CMC run to the office to tell him who they believed it was because it was such a great drawing. They did so. And he was such a dick when he was there. I mean, he, he, he'd make a celly stay out of the cell all the time. <clears throat> very, very antisocial person. But anyway, so Charles Keating was into, into all that. And so he stayed aloof. So you really didn't get to know Charles Keating, except you knew who he was because he had all the guards around him. Yeah. And uh, he'd go to eat and he, he would eat at the Mexicans' tables and then they had all the tables around him to protect him and stuff like that. Where at CMC, we usually just sat where we wanted, but they made it to where he had a protective bubble around him. And he was on B-Quad, which B-Quad was basically a half medical quad anyway. And, what, what, and then they also had an ad seg there. So it was very little main line. It was the smallest main line of the section there. Now, Christian Brando is a whole nother story. Christian Brando r- rolls up there. Just tell Jim what he was in for first. This is Marlon Brando's son. Okay, Marlon Brando's son, <laughs> Christian Brando. He had a sister named Cheyenne. And she had a boyfriend who was allegedly beating her up and stuff like that. Well, anyway, he ends up killing the guy. When he did that, Cheyenne went kind of crazy and got, got had to be put in a hospital. Anyway, he ended up getting his case, and he got manslaughter out of it. Uh, <clears throat> so, but when they got, they got him to CMC so they could protect him, basically, because he was a celebrity himself and a celebrity son. Now, we had no visiting at this time on Tuesdays and Wednesdays during the week, except for Marlon Brando. He could come up to visit his son on those two days that way he wouldn't be harassed by other visitors but the problem that came out was that he'd come in and a guard would come up and go uh, mr brando uh, i need you to sign this uh, saying the security pass saying that you're here today and uh, oh could you put it to frank front me up and uh, oh here's a fo- here's a, a, sec- a security photo of me standing next to you could you put in here to your best friend and so you had cops doing this to give him his props, he was compliant because he wanted to see his son. He didn't want to cause waves and stuff. But that came to a, a, uh, a head when we had a captain uh, who found out this was going on and went down there and told him, he comes in, he's nobody. You leave him alone. You let him visit his son. I don't want to hear about it. I hear about it, you'd be out on your ear. And it was pretty good that way, but... <clears throat> this one had gone on for about six, seven months before. But when they when Christian Brando came, again, to protect him, they put him in D-Quad. Now, D-Quad was the major nut quad. It's where they had the Cat J's, which are uh, paranoid schizophrenics in remission, and the Cat K's, which are the ones that are not in remission, that are on heavy, heavy lobotomy medicine, you know, and all that kind of that shit. Like that noisy. No, no, it was both pretty much quiet because, oh, yeah, because the guys were just so medicated most of the time. Oh. So they put him over there, but they give him a job on the back dock of the kitchen 
because they have two guards right there. So they can always watch him and nobody can get to him type thing. At this time I worked in the laundry and my job as uh, I ran the, one of the laundry washing machines, but I was a uh, assistant lead man. So I would also take rags over to the clothing room and to the kitchen. So I'd bring rags over. Well, we had a working deal with the bakery. I would bring them extra rags and they would give me fresh made donuts and coffee to take back to my crew. And we had this little thing. But when I'd go there, who did I have to get the rags to? I had to give them to Christian Brando. Now, I didn't get a lot of conversation out of him because he was really kind of funny enough. He's very big man, you know, height wise, but he was very shy in things. So we, you know, I would, I would do this, but I'd always say hi. And I never called him by his name because I didn't want him to know I knew who he was, that type of thing. I'd just go, hey, how you doing today? And stuff. <clears throat> so we end up uh, doing this. Well, turns out one day the, uh, the head of the kitchen uh, sees me walking back with donuts and coffee, you know, a bag of grounds and this big box of donuts. So I said, where'd you get those? Because these donuts were only made by the vocational bakery and they were only made for the staff. The other, they were made, you know, and then the, when the other baker guys came in, they would make stuff for us, not nearly as good. And I, and I go, well, I, I got them, from, you know, from the staff member because, you know, I'm not, I'm not, what am I going to tell them? That's where I got them from. I can't walk in there. I don't have keys, right? Says, well, that's going to stop. Okay, no problem. And took it from me, right? Okay. So next day, or next couple of days when they need rags again, I took their I took their issue of rags over, one small bag. And they go, what happens? Your boss said, I can't get donuts and coffee. You can't get rags. It's the way it works. It's real simple. Prison, you know, prison politics, the way it works. About a, about a month went by, and they're bitching, complaining because their rags get greasy and all this stuff. And the lady go, calls, c- catches me one morning. She goes, "We need more rags than that." I said, "Well, that's all you're allotted." No, we need more rags. I said, "That's all you're allotted." I said, "We had a program where you got more rags, and we got the extras, coffee and donuts that you guys didn't need." Wait right there. Next note, she comes down with a bigger bag of coffee and much more donuts and said, we need more rags. I said, no problem, be right back. Yeah, and stuff. But with Christian, I had, working in the laundry, <clears throat> we worked first watch. So we'd go in, it's like seven o'clock at night and get off at six in the morning. We had this, you know, like 11 hour shift. <clears throat> it was really great because when they had holidays, we worked that holiday night. We got holiday pay back then. They used to actually give it to us. So we have this one guy, and he's an orange hat. And orange hat were volunteers who would go over to the, the uh, D-Quad and when they would get the, the guys to come out of their cells because otherwise they'd just sit in there and drool on them. So get them out and try to get them to play Frisbee and throw a ball and try to give them some exercise stuff. And it, and it looked good for the board that you were socially involved and all this stuff. So this guy was one of those guys. So one, one day... Uh, oh, we had we had inmate photographers on the yards too. By the way, you pay them a ducat, which is a one dollar. You buy them in the canteen, you trade it, and they'll take a photo for you. So he goes to this one guy on the yard there, and that guy on that yard didn't make much money because most of the others didn't know anything about paying for photos, so they didn't get. So the guy went to him, told him, "Here, I'm going to give you these ten ducats, and I want you to get a couple of photos for me." 
He goes, I'm going to walk up to Christian Brando, put my arm over his shoulder. And when he turns to look at me, I want you to take photos. The guy goes, okay, I'm not sure. Well, no problem. Because, you know, hey, it's $10 in my hand. I ain't been making much money because they only got like $20 a month just to be there. So they got extra money for being doing the photos. So he goes and does this, right? Okay, all good. He told only two guys in the laundry that he had done, that he's going to do this, right? Didn't tell anybody else. And those two guys, real tight lip. Nobody's nobody giving him up. So he gets the photo, and it looks like they're about to kiss. Now, they had a thing called the National Enquirer. It's a little rag newspaper thing. You know, you just, you're having a Martian baby and that type of thing, you know. Um, and they don't really, and so he figured they don't have any scruples. So he figured that what he'd do is he would just send them the photo, send them byline. Christian Brando is my prison love slave, right? He figured that ought to be worth like $500, right? You know, hey, you know you've got to get a hustle, right? You know, hustle's a hustle. Sends it out. And probably for the first time in the history of the National Choir, they had some scruples and they contacted the prison. It's like 2 a.m. in the morning, and we hear dun, 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 boots slapping along the, the runway out there. The doors of the laundry boost open. In come 12 members of the security squad, both sergeants, a lieutenant, and they holler out this guy's name. <clears throat> now, what you have, out of the corner of my eye, I see him dive into a freshly... Uh, pulled out laundry out of a dryer and cover himself up. We're locked in a laundry. There's only so many places, right? It's not long before they find him. They drag him out. They cuff him up. They ankle chain him and they face drop him about half a dozen times before they take him out. They drag him down. They take and they shut the doors. The guards in our thing tells stay everybody stay away from the door. Stay the door door. Okay, so everybody runs upstairs to the upstairs area so we can look out the window. Look out the window, you see them taking him down the alleyway, down by medical. But that's where they keep the vans that they're going to transport people in. 10, 15 minutes later, you see a car go out, a van go out, another car go out, and he's gone. They take him to Tatchby Max. And from what I've understood from a few people who saw him over there, Apparently, he got worked over more than a few times uh, to where he was almost unrecognizable, permanently unrecognizable. Um, it's amazing what a, a PR24 baton will do to your, your face and your hands and stuff like that. And uh, then we got this big warning the next morning when uh, the captain came in from watch office before we got out and said, if anybody else has a bright idea like this, please run it by me first. <laughs> and I'll tell you whether it's a good one or not. <laughs> he says, otherwise, you know, there might be repercussions behind this and stuff. Um, yeah, so, um, but after that happened, everybody just kind of gave Christian a, a pretty wide berth about thing, you know, and then, you know, so... <laughs> Right. I'm going to go Sea Hag next. Sea Hag. Sea <laughs> Hag was at CMC. He was on Sea on the, on Sea Yard 
which Seayard was half mainline inmates and half, uh, you know, the Cat J's. Because the one, if you're if you're paranoid schizophrenic in remission means you're 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 doing well on your meds. You're not you know you, but they they had you couldn't be out if it was over a certain temperature. If it's over ninety degrees, you had to go back to your cell and they had air conditioning in, in the building stuff. Sea <clears throat> Hag was an old uh, merchant marine, and uh, he would be uh, kind of like Hemingway. If you looked, if you saw a picture of Hemingway, that's Sea Hag. Just not so neat. The beard was not so neat, right? And uh, he was a clerk in the building. And he was known to build plank-on-plank ships. And he did them so historically correct that three of them were bought for the governor's mansions in Sacramento. And we're not talking that he got paid a few hundred dollars for these. His ships went at that time for 10000 for a historically correct big full schooner type thing. The cheapest one he ever did was just a dinghy that he built. And that was like 5,000, you know, and, you know, he did all the meticulous, everything. And he, he, you know, I give him his props. He knew it. Now we had, uh, at CMC, because like I say, CMC had a lot of things. We had a stamp club. We had a walking club. We had a yoga club. We had a Tai Chi club. We had tennis club. We all had handball club. We had a nine hole putting green on a yard and we had an investors club. We had Blakesley and Blakesley Investments, and we had one guy named John Eicher who was his whole clientele were inmates at CMC because we had a lot of money there. All the guys working PIA making a lot of money. You know, uh, some of the vocations also paid apprenticeship money. But then we so we had the and we had guys who had hustles and so and hobby shop. We had guy we had the the average hobby shop monthly taken for inmates was about ten grand. For all the different leather belts, beaded earrings, wood paintings, whatever. So we had a lot of money there. And so Sea <clears throat> Hag built these ships and he sold these ships and and he always had standing orders. It was not like he didn't have, you know. So he'd sold many, 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 many ships to people. And uh he invested his money, he was part of that. And I got involved in it and I bought mutual funds and stuff. But um John Eicher used to come in and he'd tell people, Now I've got I've got a hot, hot one right now. It's kind of risky, but if it goes through, it's going to pay off. And he would tell you, and he would give tips that were probably not legally for him to give, but he would do this. And Seahag was one of the ones that would take these. And Seahag, more times than not, scored big. So, but Seahag, like I said, he would rub people wrong because he was gruffy. He'd just get gruff at you, you know? You know, and particularly if you were young and stupid and we had a lot of young and stupid officers and they'd come down and they'd, they'd tell him, Hey, I need you to do that. So he goes, that's not my job. Go get somebody else. And the guy said, I just told you, I, did you not hear what I said? And then he shut his the cell door. And the cop opened and he shut it again. And he, he was just this way, but he worked for the Sergeant. He didn't work for the officers and they just, some of them didn't know that. So one day, um, uh, the cop was up there and he was talking about Sea Hag. He goes, I went and looked up his file. He goes, you know what he's in here for? He said, he put a shotgun in the mouth of a guy and blew his head dead off. And he goes, he goes, he's a trash. Sea Hag hears him. 
Siag walks to his cell, comes out, brings out this little portfolio book, slaps it up there and tells him, check this out. I've been down 25 years. I killed a man who molested my daughter. And he goes, and uh, I'm worth $2 million right now. I'm worth more after 25 years in prison than you'll ever fucking be worth. I'm never getting out of prison. I know I'm never getting out of prison. He goes, but you know what? My granddaughters are going to be really well. They're going to be going to colleges. They're going to be well set up. You know, and that's all that matters. And every, every week, his daughter and his granddaughters came up to see him, you know, and they loved him just, I mean, when you'd see him out there, he, he was, he was, the tip, he was the perfect granddad out there. I mean, he was just all that, but back in his cell, he went and, and, and he told the guy, he goes, yeah, he goes, guy grabs my daughter and assaults her. And because he's the son of a police chief, the police tell me, you know, we don't have enough evidence. Oh, we've lost the DNA. Oh, this, oh, that, all these other things. He says, well, me, you know, he goes, I went and I got my shotgun, 10 gauge greener. And I put two twin 10 gauge shells through his head. And you know what? That won't be another woman hurt. And he goes, and I don't really care. And the guy's like, well, uh, 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 he goes, you know, maybe you ought to read past the, the first line and something. And he goes, but how come you're not going to get out of prison? He goes, I killed the police chief's son. He goes, do you think I'm ever going to see the streets again? He goes, I'm not going to, but I don't care. My family's safe. My family know I love them. And my family's going to be taken care of. Now, if you ever have something to say about me, you better come tell me before you go tell others. And he left it at that. And, uh, but yeah, he'd been a merchant Marine. God, he, he retired. He had a pension from that, you know, and yeah, he was up there, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but, uh, yeah, he just, he was a great, he was a great guy all in all. Like I said, you know, of course, like I said, he's long passed away now, you know, but you know, he, he, I mean, he never got out. I'm sure he passed away, but I'm sure he was in his sleep. Who was sentenced to 27 life sentences without parole? The, um, I think it says above it. Oh, that was the Schoenfeld brothers. Uh, that's the Chowchilla kidnappers, Schoenfelds, and then Ed Woods. Um, <clears throat> they kidnapped uh, 26 children and, and a bus driver and a bus. And, oh, the bus one. Yeah, the bus one, yeah. That was huge news. Yeah, and when I got to CMC, James and Rick Schoenfeld, the brothers, were there. And <clears throat> they were the epitome of being uh, the best uh, tennis team out there they were always golden tanned and out there and stuff when woods finally showed up he was all pasty and stuff he'd he'd had a harder time than they did but the thing was these were all kids that had came from family with money the problem was they didn't want to wait for money they wanted money now and so they they kidnapped this the busload kids in chowchilla uh, and it's kind of funny because it was, it's based on the idea of the Dirty Harry film when they took the bus and thing like that. But they took it and they took it into this quarry and they basically buried the, the bus in the quarry. Problem is the quarry actually was owned by one of Woods' family members. I can't remember his dad or his uncle or something like that. But <clears throat> they had a bus driver and he was an older guy and stuff. And the, most of the kids were a lot stronger than people think kids could be. And they actually were able to, to get their way out through the, the vent the, on the top of the bus. And then they got away. But the interesting thing was that they didn't get away right away. It was like they were there for quite a few hours. But um, 
you know, the, uh, the youngest, uh, Schoenfeld actually gave him some water bottles and stuff, you know, and stuff. But when I met the Schoenfelds, I, I happened to see them one day and, and, uh, and they were out there playing the tennis and stuff. And one of the balls came over my way and, uh, he goes, Hey, throw that ball. So I picked up and I threw it in the opposite direction. And he's like, did you do that for us? And you said, let me throw it. Yeah, I meant to me. I said, you didn't say throw it to me. You said, throw it. So I threw it, right? And of course, at this point in time, I was kind of having a bit of my attitude because I was new, kind of just coming into the grips that shit was going wrong. They'd already turned, taken all my good time, my work time. The governor got the right to take our dates. You know, so I was kind of like not, not all that wanting to be buddy, buddy, friendly, all that kind of shit there. So anyway, he, uh, um, and I just come down from DVI and, uh, so he comes over and he said something to me and I go, you know, I don't really care who the fuck you think you are. And he, and then he said, you know, <clears throat> we're the Schoenfeld brothers. And then it clicked. <clears throat> I said, Oh, <clears throat> so you guys just go and, and steal ki- school kids. Right. <clears throat> and he gets all kind of huffy and stuff like that. So I said, well, let me, let me add you this little tidbit. I said, do you realize how lucky you are that you're in prison? He goes, what do you mean? I said, you may not realize, but the moment that bus went missing and word got out, one of the little girls on that bus was the niece of the San Jose chapter of the Hells Angels. And word got sent to all the bike shops and clubs in the valley. I said, if you'd been out that day on the highway, you would have been amazed at how many guys were riding bikes with no woman, but they had bundles of had blanket wraps on their handlebars and stuff. And, the, and cause the word was that they wanted you or whoever did it to be turned over to them. And he's like, well, it's not like they would have killed us. I said, that would have been what you've been hoping for. <clears throat> so after that, he kind of gave me a little bit of a wide berth and stuff. <clears throat> but I can tell you when I first hit CMC, the very first day, I really got the whole shock thing. Cause I get into R and R the receiving and releasing thing. And they give you your property. And normally you take a few days to get your property. I got mine right then there. The cop goes, oh, here, would you like your property right now? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, oh, well, come here. And I, the, and then I realized that this cop is like super gay, right? And then I realized that all the inmates working in R&R are super gay, you know? And they're all calling each other girl, friend, and da-da-da-da-da, including the officers calling it, you know, stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is... Uh, so I don't really know much what's going on here. So I get the, the box <clears throat> and they, they're going, ooh, oh. And they keep handing my stuff to me and I'm putting it in another bags that they give me. And then they go, would you like a lunchbox? And they bring me a lunchbox. Now, most prisons, you get this crappy peanut butter or some kind of mystery meat sandwich type thing. Here they bring me a nice little cardboard box you open it up it's got a fruit cup in it it's got a can of uh deviled ham that's in the can it's got a nice roll it's got condiments you know it's got some onions and tomatoes and stuff it's got some chips and it's got some you know biscuits and i and then they go would you like a juice or would you like a soda and i'm like where the hell am i you know this kind of thing so i get my stuff and i get it back and they take me to my cell my cell he's at work both bunks are made so since both bunks are made, and some people do like the top bunk, I put my stuff on the floor 
till I see the guy. So there's no start. We're not going to start with disrespect off the gate. Yeah. So I go out to the yard. Now, all I've got on at this time is I've got a, a white t-shirt and it's not really a thick t-shirt because it's well-worn type thing and my jeans and I've got my boots because we transferred in that. <clears throat> so I'm walking the, walking the thing and I'm seeing, and there's all these people sunbathing on the yard. You know, and they've got their shorts pulled up as high as they can get up. And they've got oil and they're laying on blankets and they're sound asleep and stuff. And I'm thinking, I just came from DVI. You do not close your eyes on the prison yard. You do not lay out on a towel. You, you're not. And, and here it's just like everybody's doing this type thing. There's like maybe two dozen people out here. So I'm walking. And as I come around this one corner, I hear feet running up behind me. And I spin and I grab the person. And I throw him into the bushes against this building, right? Turned out he was just running the track. Right? <laughs> hey, you asshole. What the fuck's wrong with you? I said, man, you ran up on me. Man, I was trying to get past you. Hey, you ran up on me. That's all I know. You know? And like I said, I just came from gladiator school the first time. You know, so, I mean, somebody comes running up on you, you've got to expect something. So I'm walking track and I'm just trying to take it all in. And then all of a sudden I see a shadow behind me and it's a guy crouching down. And he's creeping type thing, right? And so I get over by where, where the weight pile is. I immediately drop down, pick up a five-pound weight, and spin on him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, brother. It ain't like that. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm trying to see what your tattoos are through your shirt. What? And he goes, yeah, I saw you had tattoos. I was trying to see what they were. The hell is wrong with you, Right? And he goes, where'd you come from? I said, DVI. Oh, yeah, man, we ain't like that up here. I put the weight back down. I said, okay, well, get in front of me. He goes, oh, okay. And he gets in front of me. And I'm making him stand like three feet in front of me and talk back to me. You know? And, I, and, and the guy's like, yeah. He goes, but he's, then he says, okay, but now watch. He says, see that guy? See that guy? See that guy? And those two over there? He goes, don't do anything in front of them because they're the yard snitches. He goes, the way the policy is here, you're only allowed to have 30 yard ducats in your possession at a time. If you've got more than 30, the cops find it. They'll take the extras. They give them to the yard sergeant, and then he pays these guys when they tell on things that are happening and stuff. And we weren't there about 20 minutes after that. And all of a sudden, I see one guy start running, and then you see another one running. And, you see these, and, and the idea is that the first guy who tells and the second guy who backs up the stuff both get paid <clears throat> the other ones don't get paid you know so it's like first come first serve and uh sure enough they go and they tell they saw somebody doing a drug deal and one guy told but the second guy didn't see it but he got close enough to hear what the first guy said so he could confirm it because that's part of the thing if you you know if you don't see it you still get close enough you can hear and so you, you have this type of um a process and stuff and so basically what the rule of thumb was, you find yourself one or two decent, solid people. Me, I had two solid people. I had Moose, my celly, and I had Ted Tybor Karsai, who was an allegedly a bagman for the Russian mob out of Sacramento. Now, they never caught him, but they had had him, the police and federal government had had him under surveillance, and they, uh, had walking him down and around to, uh, he was going to do pickups. And they saw him going and come out of these places with this, this little satchel. 
And then he went down this alley. Well, the funny thing about this alley is it actually turns into almost like a V. So there's like a blind spot from both ends right at the tip. They can't quite see it because it kind of flattens out before it comes back out. And they see him going with the bag. He comes back out. He ain't got a bag. So they grab him up. And they run down there and they put cops in every dipsy dumpster, trash bin thing they can find. Can't find a bag. Can find no evidence of a bag. And uh, and they go, we, we, where's the money? He goes, what money? We know you had money. You were collecting money. He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And he held on, held on, held on. So they arrest him under the, the fact they have 72 hours to build a case. <clears throat> they get two people that he brought money out of that said, yeah, I gave him this much money. I gave him that much money. And um, they were able to protect those people till his trial. But they were going to give him five years. So I met him. And um, the thing was, you look at him, he was nowhere near as big as I was. But he was, if you looked at his arms up close, they were like cords of, of cable. He could, he could virtually hit the same amount of iron as I could on almost everything. Only the incline and decline benches could he not hit what I could hit. But other than that, he was like said, pound for pound. He was, uh, you know, pretty much, but he was a great guy. He was, and he happened to marry a, <clears throat> a sister of one of the guys who happened to be attached to the Russian mob people. And, uh, but he was deported back to Romania cause that's where he actually was from. But, uh, yeah, he was, he was a great guy, but I'll tell you what the funny thing was. He got transferred to Solano while we were there to do like his last year. And, uh, he liked chew. He liked, uh, tobacco chew you put in your gums. And, uh, <clears throat> when you got on the bus at that time, they stopped letting you wear boots. You had to wear flip-flops and he had a pair of bright yellow flip-flops. Don't ask me how he got me at him, but he found out that Solano made you wait two weeks to get your property. Well, he couldn't do without Chew for two weeks, and he didn't want to have to go try to borrow Chew and all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> he bought these cigars that we had in the canteen, and they came in a plastic holder. And he packed, like, as much Chew. He had, like, six these things packed in these. And he had three of them, and he taped them together, and he hooped them the morning he was going to get on the bus, right? And I knew another guy getting on the bus with him. I told him, hey, when you see the guy with the yellow flip-flops, I said, sit behind him. I said, when you get about 10 miles out of town, go, the hell smells like Copenhagen. (laughs) (laughs) Because what ended up happening is they stopped at Soledad for overnight. So he couldn't eat anything the whole time before he went to the next day there. But I get a message back from his wife and she said, Ted says, ha ha that was so funny <laughs> so i knew the guy had done it to him you know? but uh yeah he was he was a really a really great guy and stuff you know and like i said he's somebody that if i ever met i'd i'd love to kick it with because but yeah we we you know uh and funny thing with him robbie rosencrantz you know who we're coming up on was there and i'll tell you when his his attitude towards robbie you know, so. what's robbie's story then Okay, Robbie Rosencrantz, uh, he was 18 years old. Um, he was gay, but he wasn't known to be gay. He had a girl that everybody thought was his girlfriend who also was gay, right? So they used to go places so they could be with the people they wanted to be with. 
they were having a graduation party from high school. <clears throat> so his best, one of his, like his best friend that from high school, who also like said, did not know he was gay and his brother, um, kind of got word that there was this gay thing going on. So they came at him with a, with a stun gun, uh, you know, and, um, uh, and they did something else, but they came in and, uh, <clears throat> basically broke in the room. I think it had a, a, like a bat or a baton or something broke in the room and, and, and st- well, they broke the party all up, you know, and stuff. But then what ended up happening was the best friend went to Robbie's dad. Now Rosencrantz, he's Jewish, went to his dad and told him, you know, he's gay, good, strong Jewish family, not the thing to do. So there was a big thing. And basically his dad threw him out on his ear. You know, you're no son of mine. You're dead to me. Da, 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 all that time. Well, Robbie ends up going out, <clears throat> spends a few days, finds it, gets a place where he finds, and he gets a, gets an Uzi, you know, and he has the Uzi, you know, uh, and takes photos of him holding the Uzi and, you know, doing all that, that, that kind of stuff. But he goes on a drive-by looking for the friend. The story he tells everybody, he just wanted to convince the guy to, re, to redact his story. He said, no, that's not. But his brother also told the dad, you know. But he said he only planned to shoot the guy's car up. Well, he ended up shooting the guy in the car in about 10, 12 rounds, something like that, and killed the guy. So he gets a second degree. Well, his dad was involved with the movie industry, I understood. So he had long thing. Now, normally, unless you were like certain people like Christian Brando, who still had to go through Chino reception before you could get to CMC, you don't come, you don't just come to CMC. It doesn't happen. He does. Right from county jail, he comes to CMC. Not only does he come to CMC, he's given a cell in the honor unit up on the third floor, up where Tex Watson and those guys are living. You don't get a single cell. You have to wait on a waiting list, sometimes up to five or more years. He gets the job working in the office as a lieutenant's clerk. Wait a minute. He's just been here. He hasn't been here 24 hours. He's got a job. The guy who had the job, who'd had the job for years, was found to have some heroin in his cell. Interesting thing. And you might know a bit more about this. If you are a meth head... How often do you use heroin? Never. You do. Right. So the guy that, that was in there was a meth guy, yet he suddenly gets busted with heroin. Yeah. And uh, so he goes to the hole, loses his cell, loses his job. Robbie walks into it. That right there did not endear him to people on the yard. Even the guys who were pieces of shit on the yard weren't happy with that because who the fuck is this guy? 18-year-old kid, blah, 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 and stuff. And he's going, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, all this type. Well, <clears throat> suddenly, we have officers getting hernias from carrying his mailbags from all the the young gay kids that are writing to him, you know, support and, oh, I'm, you know, this type of thing. And he starts getting this big following of people. I mean, seriously, money being sent in, all this stuff. And he starts by, and CMC was one of the few places where you could buy clothes, that you could wear personal clothes and stuff, but you, we had catalogs where you could almost like buy certain like designer type stuff. Wow. And he bought a workout outfit for him. And he had a guy he worked with named, they called bronze who was, 
mixed race. But if you ever saw the Doc Savage character, the man of bronze, he, this guy looked bronze and they called him bronze. And he bought them workout outfits that had these little tiny strings that came down the front, went down to a diamond patch here, oh. came, up, came up over the back and then strapped around. And then they had these little lightweight, like jogging shorts that went over them, right? So <clears throat> they're out there working on the weight pile together. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming around with Ted. We've just done our workout over here. We come around and there is uh, Robbie doing these which are commonly referred to as Adolphs. <laughs> and Ted stops and goes, my, 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 what's the world come to when a starts doing Adolf Hitler salutes? <laughs> so Robbie drops the weights and he's shaking. He's so mad, he's shaking. Bronze steps up and bronze is pretty cut up and stuff like that. And he, t- he tells Ted, you better shut up, you fucking Russian. Yeah. And he goes, no, no, I'm Romanian. And he goes, oh, so you're a pig. I've never seen anybody get hit so fast. In a blink of an eye, he'd hit him and put his hand back down his side. The guard in the tower couldn't even catch him on the camera doing it. It was so quick. It was right angle where he just pow, just chin checked him as hard as he could. Bronze falls back, hits his head on the, on some weights and stuff. And Robbie's like, you assaulted me. You're telling the guard at the tower. He's hit him. He's hit him. And the guard goes, wait a minute. Tells everybody, stop. He goes, he looks at his camera. He cannot see from the angle. He can't see this chin shot, right? We're all standing there. Guard says, I don't know what's going on down there, but you guys quit doing it or you're going to have to go back and get off the playground and that type of thing, right? So he goes, walk it off. You know, we go walking around. So later, this other guy is big bruiser type guy who was a gay boy, but masculine type gay boy type thing, comes up and says, you know, we don't want any of your homophobic, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Ted goes, homophobic? He goes, I just don't fucking like him, right? <laughs> yeah. He goes, hell, I don't care what he does. I just don't like you know, and he's like, oh, crap, you know, you know, and <clears throat> so they, we have this little standoff and then the guy's like, well, I just want you to leave them alone. So look, we don't really care what you guys do. Stay out of our way. We're all, so we go over there. So the next day, <laughs> Ted goes, let's superset them. Fuck. So we were doing pull downs and slapping as much weight on as we can. You know, I mean, we're pushing it. <clears throat> and we're doing it just to irritate them because they're they're where they work out they can see us, yeah. We just did it to irritate them and shit like that. But uh, Robbie, uh, actually, his dad came around, got him some really good lawyers and stuff. He eventually he ended up doing twenty one years on seventeen to life, and uh, because the thing was he kept being listed as a model inmate. The problem was all the model inmates kept getting shipped out of. CMC and he wasn't getting shipped out. Yeah. And so, you know, he ended up, I mean, because Tex Watson was a model inmate. He got shipped out with me. <laughs> yeah. He suddenly wants you know, to be a model. Watson is one of the murderers for Charles Manson. He's one of the Manson, Manson family. family. Yeah. Cause I was there. I was, I, I, I met Charles Manson at Vacaville and then at CMC, I was with 
uh, Charles Tex Watson, Bobby Boussoulet, and Bruce Davis, all three were also Manson family members. Wow. And they had, uh, Tex had uh, conjugal visits and had his own family. He he got a family and he got, he he got um, uh, his church-based thing where he was getting tax-free. He got, and they bought a house that was church property and all that kind of shit like that. Yeah. What was Charlie Boy like? Pardon? What was Charlie like? Which one? Manson. Manson? Charlie Manson was a, he was a little squirrel. He was a little nut. Uh, when I first met him, he was working in the uh, Catholic chapel at, at Vacaville. And a guy pulled me up and said, hey, you want to meet Charlie Manson? And I went, no, 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 I don't really. It doesn't, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a celebrity hound. So he goes, come here. He takes me into the chapel. And we look in the garden. He goes, there he is right there. And the guy stands up and he's like five foot two, five foot three. It's a little short shit, right? And because the Manson stuff happened when I was still a teenager, in my mind, because of every time they talked about it, and they talked about having to have all these go- cops around and stuff, I just always thought he was a much bigger man. I just, you know, but evidently I was thinking like Tex Watson, who was much taller and stuff. But anyway, it just never clicked. So I'm like, well, that's not. But he used to, he used to p- paint on rocks and sign them and stand by a canteen trying to get you to buy them. You know, and guys bought them because, well, it's Charles Manson. But when I worked in the hospital, and what he, he he'd come over. And uh, he would try to hustle the guys who were in the hospital to get needles or get any kind of pills and stuff like that. Because Vacaville was a medical facility and we had psych drugs and, and other kind of stuff. And um, he came to me and uh, with that, uh, hey, brother, you know, and I told him, we're not brothers, you know, we're not cousins. I don't care. And he goes, don't you know who I am? I said, yeah, and I don't really care. I'm Charles fucking, G- you know, Manson. I'm more than Jesus Christ ever was. And he starts getting on. I told him, you know, go away. What? I said, go away. And he starts doing, I said, give me all that crazy eye you want. I don't care. And and to be honest with you, <laughs> my opinion, and this is my opinion, my opinion only. He'd always been a petty little thief. He'd been sexually abused when he was a child in, in youth facilities and jails and stuff. The only thing that he did was that he made the good figurehead for the family. Tex Watson, I'll till by dying breath, I'll believe that he was actually the real, you know, evil behind all that. When he took the girls there and said, Charlie said to do this. I'm sorry. His name's Charlie too. He, the girl, he didn't say Charlie Manson said, he said, Charlie said to do this. Yeah. Um, He's the one that recruited the girls because he was good looking and he was, you know, intelligent and all this stuff. Charlie was just fun to be around because he played music and he did dope and, you know, and he had these hallucinogenic things and had these ideas that he was going to one day be king of the world or whatever, you know, and that type of thing. Um, the only one out of the four guys I knew that I thought was redeemable was Bruce Davis. Do you reckon he was brainwashed? Pardon? Do you reckon he was brainwashed? Who? Bruce. No, no, no. No, Bruce was a part of the family thing, but Bruce wasn't a part of the killing of the of the Tate and LaBanca. So he wasn't a part of that. No. He killed Shorty O'Shea who'd, and was involved in another killing. Totally separate. He would not have still be in prison if he hadn't have been connected to the Manson family. If he'd just done these other killings, he'd have been out. But because he was a part of that, you know, and then the thing with Bobby Boussoulet, Bobby Boussoulet was in jail already for something else when the Manson shit happened, 
and he was not, he was going to be getting out. And all of a sudden he started, yeah, I'm part of the Manson family. And then they got him for being a part of the Manson family. And then he got, but Bobby Boussoulet so badly wanted to be a part of something else. He got involved in all the white supremacist shit and everything like that. You know, so he, he kind of screws himself on things like that. But Bruce Davis, honestly, I believe that he truly regretted everything. I believe that he truly uh, rehabilitated himself. I watched him do lots and lots and lots of good for people, never thinking to get anything back. And uh, quite honestly, like I said, if anybody was out of that whole bunch was really somebody who should be able to be get out it would have been Bruce. And I think if Bruce had got out, I think quite honestly, the world would have been much better because like I said, the man, I sat and talked to him for hours, you know, and, and, you know, and he just, uh, he was a very strong minded man who at, he admitted that at times when he was younger, didn't know how strong he could be. He always thought he had to have other people's approval and that's what got him in trouble. But when he realized that it didn't matter if he had people's approval, as long as he could, as he said, when I can get up in the morning, and look at myself in the mirror, I know I'm okay. And that was how he looked at things. Yeah. Did the Aryan Brotherhood punk out um, Manson and have him bring it, women bringing the drugs in? <clears throat> well, what happened was Manson had so much money coming in that Manson bought TVs for him, bought things for him, you know, and, and, but he did that in part that they would give him, you know, protection and stuff along the line. But see, that's, he's not like the only one, um, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, Cameron Hooker and Carrie Stainer. Vaguely. I mean, okay. Explain. okay. Well, Cam, uh, Cameron Hooker was the guy who had the girl in the box. Ooh. You know, and he was at Folsom with me and he, I knew him when I was at Folsom, you know, and the thing was, he had been protected by the AB because they all thought it was really great to have sex slaves. You know, that's what every guy, all the guys want a sex slave, you know, come on. You know, and having a girl in the box under the bed for any time you want her. And when you take her down below in the torch chamber and put a box on her head, chain her up, you know, beat her, do whatever you want. You know, it's cool. It's like, you know, and when you have your wife helping you, that's what even makes it better, you know, because it's like, you know, it's a, it's a family affair. And, uh, but Cameron Hooker, huh? Bit of foreplay. Yeah. Well, Cameron Hooker had, had convinced, the uh the gal that you know he actually belonged to the company you know the organization that had worldwide where they would trade women and if you didn't you know and they all this and he did all this stuff and he had her for like seven years and he had her so brainwashed that there was times when he actually let her go visit her family and she came back because she was afraid that something would happen to her family if she didn't and all this stuff eventually his wife got jealous about what was going on, thinking he was falling in love with her and stuff, and then helped her escape and stuff. And I mean, there's been a number of movies that I, I actually had a couple of reporter people for film stuff contact me about Cameron Hooker. But um, what ended up happening when uh, when he was he, he was at Folsom, and um, this is many years later after when I was back at Folsom the second time, he was still there, right? And but by then the, the AB. If you were anybody in the AB, you were locked up in Pelican Bay to slam shoe. You know, as soon as they got the idea you were a part of that, they they were slam. But you had the skinheads coming out at this time and the Nazi lowriders and <clears throat> these other little groups. And he was there. Well, we had a walkway that you came down and go around to go down to the library. And up here was Native American spiritual grounds and the religious grounds I had and stuff. But you go down to the uh, library and it's a 
blind zone. No cops can see you at all. And as they were going down, there was a kid down there. And apparently the rumor was afterwards that he actually was related in some way to the, the victim. And uh, he wasn't born when all this happened. He basically found out about after he was born years later and grew up. And then when he finally went to prison, he got in the position where he could get to the guy. <clears throat> and he just basically, you know, stomped the dog snot out of Cameron. Cameron to being having to be sent to a, a special yard over in Corcoran and, you know, stuff like that. Now, <clears throat> funny enough, funny enough, uh, he was found suitable for parole. Uh, he wasn't supposed to be for a number of years, but laws changed and stuff. But then they held a hearing for him and got him up as uh, SVP, you know, a sexual violent predator. And he's now in the hospital. And now he has to stay in the hospital until the doctors say he's no longer uh, uh, you know, a threat, which could be, who knows? Never. Could be. One of the scariest, most famous killers that Jamie ever came across was Edmund Kemper. You familiar, of, are you familiar with Kemper? Oh, my God. <laughs> He's been a subject of so many serial yeah. killer shows, uh, Mind, Mind Hunter and all that stuff. Oh, Mind Hunter, yeah. It's episode one? Yeah. Kemper? That? I can't remember it. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but you know, he... But the thing Just is, describe what Kemper looked like to, to Jen. <clears throat> well, chalk by memory. He's about three hundred pounds. He's like about six foot nine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I met him, I met him the the very first day I was in prison when I was at Vacaville, and I got called down after Chow to go to my first quote orientation the thing. And there was a couple of blue shirt guys wandering around that were just regular inmates. So we're all wearing this really weird fluorescent green clothes. And uh, they're handing out paperwork and stuff, and they give us a little bit of this thing. And all of a sudden, this this man just walks in the room, and they moved away and got to the walls. I don't think Jen knows what he did. What did he do? Well, he did quite a few murders. <clears throat> he killed his grandparents when he was uh, a teenager. They put, him in, they put him in a mental hospital for it. After, I don't think it was only about four or five years, the doctor said he was ready to go. He said, no, 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 no. Don't let me out. I don't, I, I, I don't feel good about getting out. And they went, oh, you're just having late pubescence uh, issues and stuff. It'll be all right. Got out, killed some co-eds, you know, uh, drove around with one on his seat of his car, eventually killed his mom, who was kind of the behind all the stuff. Now got taken in. Yeah, he was he, never a problem when he got arrested. He's very high intelligence, wasn't very, he? And he used to hang out at the police bar yeah. and like talk to the cops about stuff. And in the end, he felt compelled to just give himself yeah. up because he, he would never have been caught because he was so intelligent. Yeah. But the gruesome things he did to the women, oh, oh yeah, we probably yeah, probably say on skinned YouTube. them and you know boiled them, meat and heads know, cut off, everything. Yeah, all yeah. that. You know, there's there's even been talk that he possibly. Uh, did a little bit of cannibalism things and stuff I was like say that. Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. <clears throat> kind of, well, kind of not quite like that bad, but yeah. I'll, but when we had, but there was one time there was a three. I knew three can. I knew two cannibals in prison. You know, and um, you know we had we had a guy named Heater who was known as the Santa Claus Killer because he would he looked like Santa Claus and he killed children. He was busted with children's fingers in his pockets Ooh. that he would snack on and and stuff Ooh. like that. Con. Yeah, he ate them. Fingers. Yeah, yeah. Like carrot sticks or something, you know. And I had a guy named Buddha, big black guy, sit there at uh, 
at Vacaville. And he would come through the line and he would hold his pants up and he'd have belt in his hand here, but he'd hold his pants up. He put his tray. You come through and you're supposed to get an issue and you're supposed to move on. And he'd stand there until you gave him what he wanted. <clears throat> he filed his teeth to be like shark's teeth. And this one cop one time was new and didn't know and said, move on and reached over to take an extra something off his tray. And he bit into the guy and took a big chunk of meat out of him and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. Was it you or John Abbott that told us the story of Kemper at the weight pile? No, I didn't tell you Kemper at the weight pile. Mine was when he was John Abbott then. Yeah, mine was when he, when he came in and he stood at the podium and he looks out at us and in a very monotone, he goes, every man must have a moral compass. You must not deviate from your moral compass. And I kept thinking, I'd have to kill this motherfucker if he ever came at me because he's just so big. You can't John, fight this man. just described his hands. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Like Shovels. Bigger than the... the yeah. Wow. Well, like they, they said that the AV wanted to see how strong he was one day and they took him to the weight pile and they put the max on it and he just went like it was nothing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But he... But the interesting thing is he started reading books on tape for the blind. And so I always wondered, if you're blind, then this is the voice you're hearing in your head. You know? Yeah, and then he all. But the one good thing I can say that he did put was involved in was starting the hospice program there at Vacaville for the inmates with AIDS. <clears throat> the staff would would go in there fully garbed and they'd only do what they had to and get away. And he actually got in there and sat down with read to him, and he would and he actually got that program started. So, you know, does that mean there's some good in him? I don't know. You know, is he still alive, Kemper? I believe so. Bloody hell! I believe so. Wow, I wonder what he thinks of all his newfound fame of the internet and everything. Good grief. Yeah. All right, so Jamie, we've, we've finished think, the 10. Yeah. Do you want to just tell the audience then how your life has been for, for a bit before we finish since we lasted our po- free podcasts? Well, outside, outside of the COVID, <laughs> I think that, <laughs> that, was, that was, which was kind of funny because the thing was, I remember when everybody was saying, oh, we're going on lockdown, we're going on lockdown. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got a garden and I've got... You know, this, I, I've got to go out and get food for where I was staying. I've got this house I'm living in. I'm thinking, yeah, this isn't really lockdown. It's, you know, four by eight foot cell, <laughs> door slammed, sl- tray slid under your door. That's lockdown. <laughs> this is not really a lockdown thing. Mm. Uh, but it's been pretty good. Uh, like I said, um, I've been able to go back to the Isle of Man now a total of four times. I'm going back. Uh, the first week of June for the TT for the first time to be able to actually experience it. But like I said, um, are you still planning on living there, moving there? I, that I don't think will ever be a possibility. There's a number of reasons why. Um, one of the first things is finances. You know, <clears throat> I doubt that I'll ever be financially stable to where I could buy a house there. And pretty much I wouldn't want to live there under somebody else's house type thing because you know, it's like in Britain, they always say every man's house is his castle. Well, you don't want to be able to be tossed out of your castle by the landlord. Yeah, you know, something about him sticking the dragon on you. You don't want that, you know. So I would like a place on my own if I could. But uh, I don't see that happening. But the thing is, I'm 68 years old now, you know. Um, so getting a mortgage would never be a possibility, you know. So I'd have to become got to old, sell enough books well that or win the lottery you know or something along that line uh find find lost gold or something 
Um, just not tell them I found it. You know, just <laughs> melted down into smaller things. <laughs> but when we were there with you, it was like it was your homecoming. Yeah. The way the locals, oh, when yeah. they heard, when you told your stories and oh, you yeah. told them about the origin of it and the Isle of Man. Oh, they've all been like that. They, they were so receptive to you. And the light in your eyes, it was like you, you, you found your, you know, your place well, in, yeah, in, in like the said, world. Well, yeah, like I said, but my, when I got my, I got my birth registered here uh, this last uh, uh, February, on my birthday, on my 68th birthday, I got my birth registered, which is basically an unheard of thing because that's the latest birth ever registered in the UK. And they did the full page article for the Manx Independent. But to get a birth certificate, don't they have to have someone who was there present at your birth? Well, I had enough documentation to verify that who my parents were. I had, you know, uh, how I got sent away. I had documentation from the man, Dr. Wetmore, who bought me, who had, had, had done a lot of his own research. I had the federal government, U.S. federal government that had done their verification they had spoken to my aunt my my dad's sister and she's verified yes i was his son but they'd sent me away and they didn't want me they didn't want to have anything to do with me so i had enough verification stuff the problem was whether the law would support my birth being registered that late because in all actuality the um the way the law read was that they had to have register your birth within 45 days if not uh they had up to a year but they could be fined you know and, um, but they had nothing if it went beyond a year. So this was a big thing. So I, I was actually forced to file a writ with the, the high court and <clears throat> my writ happened to fall on the first Deemster's, uh, desk, who is the highest judge on the Isle of Man for the high court. And he read through it. He looked at all my evidence. He believed I had a right to have my birth registered. And, uh, he basically pointed the registry office to the right section which was like two lines in a huge huge document from 1984 and they uh they granted it and then they called me up and it was they really funny because they called me up only like the thursday before my birthday was going to be like my birthday was like a monday they called me up on on the thursday and said we'd like to issue your birth certificate could you be here for your birthday we'd like to do it on your birthday so i had to quickly make it get airplane tickets get a hotel you know, figure out how to get to the airport in Manchester, <clears throat> all this stuff. I'm not, I'm and all had to do on the computer, you know, and I had my, get my, my vaccine vaccination papers and make sure my pat had, you know, had all my paperwork ready and all this stuff and did it flew in on, flew in on the Sunday and went down the first thing in the morning and they were all waiting there and I got it all filmed that and that hopefully it'll come out as a video as well but uh you know and it was yeah it was quite emotional and like i said i did one my my first trip over i did a, a video of that and you can see the emotion in my eyes just seeing the land and stuff for the first time since i uh, you know i left and um but every time i go back to the aisle i feel more connected and i go different places and there are places i likely never went to before but they feel familiar, you know, and I've made some, I've got some good friends I've made over there. And that's part of how I'm going over is that, uh, a real good friend of mine has made arrangements for me to have, uh, free accommodations for us when we go over. And, um, you know, I'm gonna, 
you know, do that. I'm planning to swim in the sea for the first time since I've been back in the UK and even kayak. And, uh, yeah, no, but life's been good. Um, like I said, my first book has sold very well and it came out in paperback, audiobook, and ebook. And then this one's just come out and this is now in uh, ebook and paperback and hopefully it'll go an audiobook as well. And, um, I've got two more manuscripts right now that I'm working on, you know, uh, but you know, like I said, you know, I, I've had probably, oh, probably close to 2,700 people contact me who've been reading my book and, you know, they've gotten me through messenger, Facebook, um, my website and stuff. And, uh, I appreciate them all. That's why every, I answer every one of them. I make sure I get a personal message to them telling me, I appreciate that. Thank you for contacting me. Some of them have sent me numerous messages and some of them have returned, have become friends and I've met them. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been all good, but like I said, you know, I'm 68 and still going strong, still get up from vertical in the morning. And that's why I count for things. So all of Jamie's links will be in the description box below this video. If you do want to reach out to him on Facebook or get his book. And to the people who started the conspiracy theory that Jamie was born in Arizona, take that. Go and wipe your ass on that. You should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> and, um, yeah, good grief. This has been a masterclass in storytelling. If you are thinking of coming on the podcast, take some notes from Jamie's ability because when we ask a question, we like a good long story that lasts at least 30 minutes and so we can just sit here and not say anything and be completely lazy. Yeah, it's been easy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So please support. Go down and support Jamie and what he's doing. And uh, all, like I said, all the links will be down there. All of Jen's links are down there as well. And this has been a great day to start out our 17-day tour. Four-hour podcast with Jamie Morgan Kane. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a hug, brother. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, I know. Right in the way. Oh, fantastic. Man, as usual, it's always yeah. a great pleasure. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, Gadfly Press is hugely proud to announce the publication of Killing Escobar and Soldier Stories by Peter McAleese. If you've not seen our podcast we've done with Peter, check it out. And the book is now available worldwide on Amazon in all formats. And Peter was hired out of Scotland, mercenary by the Cali Cartel, to assassinate Pablo Escobar one of the most famous gangsters in the history of the world. The mission is all detailed in the book, as well as Peter's many soldier stories from various countries and continents of the world. So, mind-blowing, gripping, as seen on BBC TV. This is the book, the story that Killing Escobar is based on, Peter McAleese's testimony. The link will be in the description box below the video. Available worldwide on Amazon. Cheers.